I'm Robin and a grad student. What do you do? He's like, well, I work on this stuff and this stuff. I was like, oh, you know, he would really, you would really like to read. There's this researcher, Ken Perlin. And he was like, I am Ken Perlin. (laughs) 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 And I was like, ah! Hi, everybody. This is Soren Johnson, and you are listening to Designer Notes, a podcast about why we make games. Today, we are talking to veteran game developer Robin Hunnicke, best known for her work on MySims, Blocks, and Journey, and also as the co-founder of Phenomena. This episode was recorded December 1st, 2021, and was engineered by Michael Hermes. How I usually like to start mm-hmm. is, what's the first video game that you remember? <laughs> the first video ga- uh, game I remember is uh, Pitfall. Okay. Uh, and that's because my my neighbor, where I was growing up in Saratoga, Jody Lasky, if you're out there listening, hello. Um, she had a ColecoVision and mm-hmm. Pitfall on it. And the rule at her house was you were allowed to play as long as you didn't die. And then when you died, you had to handle the controller over to the other person and say, okay, now it's your turn. And so I would watch her play Pitfall for hours and then immediately die and then watch oh, no. her play Pitfall for hours. So I remember just desperately wishing that would we could she have just, her own. Would she just beat the game over and over She again? would just play forever and like just really good at like, you know, getting over the pits and avoiding the crocodiles and like, then eventually she'd fall into quicksand or something and I would just be like, yes! And then my feeling from that memory is just being overwhelmed with anxiety, my palms sweating, and like just like knowing that I'm gonna miss a jump and like miss a twitch, not know the level, and like I could never really memorize the level without playing it. So I remember being very, very desperate to win and totally unprepared to play fast like the first three screens. So uh, side scrolling, uh, endless runner is not my favorite category. <laughs> <laughs> a hard start. I I do remember that phase with, with, yeah. with kids where you know there's just that sense of fairness of or quote unquote fairness yeah. where it's like I'm playing. Yep. You know, good, good, good. Yeah, right? yeah, get good. Started that early. But we didn't have one at the house. Her dad was a doctor. They also had a massive Lego collection, mm-hmm. which I just. Hours and hours and hours spent in the basement in her house with like my feet freezing because you were not allowed to wear shoes in the house. Right. Um, and I remember layering second pair of socks on mm-hmm. to go over to her house because I knew we were going to be playing in the unheated basement with Legos. And I just loved going through her her brother's space Legos and taking out all the really fancy, shiny colored pieces because I had one set of Legos, which was the basic brick set that you got yeah, like true. in 1977 yep. or whatever. It was just starting to get fancy right around that yeah, time. Yeah, in like yeah. the mid-80s, I just remember just loving their Legos and just being like, I wish my dad was a gynecologist. <laughs> <laughs> this seems like a great job yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to all get the all the things. Yeah. 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 So so I associate video games with that feeling of like, I'm going to die yeah, and yeah. I'm not going to be able to play. Were you, ever, were you ever able to sneak behind them and like play it all by yourself? No, no. Moment? But when we did get it, we did eventually get a Super Nintendo and then 
that, Super Nintendo. Yeah, we ended up getting okay, a SNES many years, many many years. Just jumping way yeah, forward. Yeah. yeah. So the second game that I did play compulsively and I did really become obsessed with was Mule. Oh, and great. so in seventh grade, <laughs> uh, my friend Katarina Edstrom, if you're listening, hello, um, her brother had a had a Commodore 64 in his room. Right. And um, I had a crush on him, so that was really nice. It was like a double whammy. You get to play yeah. Mule and also be in his bedroom. Awesome. Um, yeah, he was much older than, than us, so it was, it was way out of my league. But um, I remember playing it and playing against her. And having this experience of like being able to use the controller at the same time as her to try and push the auctions the auction, up yep. and having physical interactions yep. while trying to like beat each other in the auction. <laughs> and then also being like, wow, we're also playing against the computer. So it's right. like me against her, but also us against the store, yep. you know, um, or the other two, you know, the other two investors, settlers. And I would go home at night and I would like think and think and think about like, what am I not doing? Why am I not catching better? the wumpus? Like, right. what what can I do? Um, and it was years and years and years later that I learned that you know Mule was made by the first Outrans designer in yep. the all of games. Yep. And I was like, yes, yep. <laughs> this is like yeah. a super super win for me. But I I yeah, often I was... used to end my uh, my bio saying that my first love was Mule because it was really the first game where I was like, this is awesome and it's social and I want to know how it works. Like yep. I oh, I want to understand what I can do to beat her yep. and it. That's <laughs> yep. uh, a great game. I mean, great one to start with. EA, EA skew number one. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, I mean, uh, our, you know, our first game, Off World Train Company, was like really, you know, we wanted to make like the best we could modern version of Mule. Yeah. You know, you can't really quite re recreate it. Like it was, it was an interesting game because it was early enough for the Commodore 64 that it was, it was, you know, it was pretty ugly. It was ugly. <laughs> and it was like a little, you know, the, not that there were a lot of UI conventions back then, but there really was like nothing. But the design was amazing. It like was it was, so fun. it was you know way ahead of its time. Um, yeah, I remember in college downloading a ROM of it and playing it on my PC and hearing the music and just being like, "What the fuck? This is yep. amazing! It's so much better than I remembered." And that was probably the. It was around that time that I was also like starting to think about hacking video games myself and mm -hmm. like you know, downloading something like the Half-Life engine and then like making mods or something like that. You know, it wasn't until that time in my life, like, you know, 15 years later or whatever, that I actually thought, oh, a person made Mule. <laughs> you know? right. Like this yep. was made by a person or people yep. and they made the sounds and the colors and wow, what a choice. This loading screen is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> you yep. know, so like I, I didn't perceive of them as being programs and I didn't, didn't have a computer to program. Yeah. You may so. have not seen like the the sleeve, whatever it's called, album for Yeah, Mule. no, no. Yeah. Only because, at EA on the wall, you know, I've seen the box yeah. there. Yeah, that's too bad because like that actually, you know, like they actually really did a good job of that. You know, like the, the, the album you look at, it shows the developers like just kind of hanging out in Arkansas, that's right? That's cool. And um, I, like, uh, like I, I the, the early EA games just, or like mind nostalgia spot because you could see that it was made by people. Yeah. Like a lot of people have your. I mean, I've interviewed a lot of people now, right? Yeah. Podcasts and so many of them have what you say, which is like these things just appeared. I have no idea. Like, I thought Santa made them. Right. Like I literally did. I was like, they come from the North Pole. Yep. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Like if only I could get one of these things. Yeah. And I, then Santa's not real. Wait, who makes all the video <laughs> who games? Makes this <laughs> Better than Santa. Um, 
Uh, I missed one point. Was it on someone else's Commodore 64 or? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, so I I didn't have access to computers until I was in college. Actually, oh, wow. that's not that's not totally true. I did a summer program when I was living in Saratoga at Skidmore in like sixth grade, maybe fifth grade over the summer, where we learned to use an Apple Macintosh, maybe or an Apple, maybe maybe a two E to do drawing. And I remember creating circles and triangles on the screen with a mouse and then it was black and white and you could fill it with different fills yep. and then print it out and then we painted on them oh okay. and i was like "Ooh, this is fun and yeah. then when i was in high school my parents sent me to a summer program uh, at cambridge university like a summer abroad mm -hmm. mostly because i was really wild and not paying attention to school <laughs> and getting high before school every day it was not a great time in my life i was very bored um as a smart child in a public school yep. and they sent me away and that program had a very cool extremely expensive like graphics computer and we could scan photographs in that we developed and then edit them on the computer and then reprint them out. Right. And so I had had experiences with very expensive, like the university owns it computers, but like they didn't exist sure. in my life. Yeah. The only other time I ever saw computers was my dad was a quality assurance kind of TQM guy at GE. And he took me once to see the computers where all the computer paper came from that we drew on. Right. The green and yep. white printout paper. Yep. And so I went into a room with just like lights and I was like, oh. And he was like, these are all the computers. Yep. And I was like, oh, cool. You know, like the idea of having a personal computer was was well beyond our means. Yeah. I got an encyclopedia when I was 16. Okay. Yeah. Oh, well, that's, I mean, that's probably too bad i assume things i mean it's not like things would have worked out differently well not really maybe but like who knows, who knows what would have happened if you had been able to you know be, i assume you would have been you would have picked up programming pretty easily as like i did kid, so. eventually just start programming in college i i went to school i went to the university of chicago i graduated mm -hmm. from high school with not great grades but a lot of great extracurriculars one of which was yearbook which i think really drove me to become a producer but like hmm. i wanted to take I wanted to get out of school in three years and I had a lot of AP extra credits, so it was expensive. Sure. My parents yeah. had to take out a mortgage on the house, so I didn't want to keep oppressing them with my education. So I was like, I'm going to graduate fast. And one of the ways I could do it was to get out of taking math, my math requirement by taking a class in math called computer programming is a liberal art. And huh. I learned to program in HyperCard. Oh. Yeah. I used HyperCard. Yeah, I loved uh, it. As, uh, that was such a good language. I, I yeah, I, uh, I'm actually kind of, uh, uh, what's the right way to put this? Um, I feel like there's a little something wrong with me that I didn't actually program more as a kid. You know, I did some, some basic stuff on my Commodore 64, but like, you know, honestly, it was like a lot of work and um, you just have to type it in and then wait for it to run yeah, that like, sounds frustrating <laughs> i never got over the leap of like figuring out how to really get graphics on the screen so you know you can only make these simple text adventures so so much um but we got a we got a mac and somehow i got a copy of hypercard and yeah i mean there was it was just there's nothing like it right no. you know you could just kind of build something and just just go you know and so i was able to make little you know, little, uh, graphical adventure games, right? Where you yeah. click on stuff and go through, you know, check, yeah. explore the closet, find the key, you know, move around. So yeah, tell me, please tell me why I'd love to hear about your experience. Well, so I, I took the class because I didn't want to take, um, I didn't want to do calculus. I, I like geometry 
and I can do algebra, but I really, really, really don't like derivatives and like, you know, starting to think about like more complex functions. When math gets abstract, I find it very hard. I have, I'm a visual thinker. And so, sure. um, and I had, my mom had wanted me to go to school to become an artist. So when I was in Cambridge, I studied poetry and photography and mm-hmm. I saw the illustrated poems of William Blake there in their library like one of the original copies of, of yep. those works. Mm-hmm. And then I learned that he was a pagan, which at the time I was a super goth. So like, you know, I <laughs> went, I went there. to see the cure at Wembley stadium, you know, that year in 1989 on the disintegration tour, okay. best experience that's, of my life. So pretty good. Pretty good yeah, right I was wearing a lot of black eyeliner and, um, I was really into the idea that William Blake had been a pagan. And then also he had created his own, printing process that allowed him to do essentially four color prints of his own and then produce books of his own mm-hmm. i was like that's badass like because he was writing all this weird ass poetry and like i was so inspired by that and then i realized oh the computer's kind of that thing and like that kind of lodged in the back of my mind so that when i enrolled at school the next year and then i got in wait, wait I'm, um, I'm sort of losing the thread here you were at cambridge i was at cambridge when i saw the the books and then i used that computer and then when i went like to you college were, you were you were I was visiting si- or studying I was visiting college? for a summer and I was 16 years old. Okay. So, how did you know, that come about? Well, so my parents, I wasn't doing well in school in high school, and my parents, I think they sensed that I was just really underserved mm-hmm. by my public education. Like, I got caught my freshman year of high school reading A Stranger in a Strange Land okay. inside my book. <laughs> <laughs> we were reading Romeo and Juliet out loud, line by line as a class. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I was like, literally kill me. Like I've already read it yeah. twice. Mm-hmm. Um, I liked it. I, I proved the play. It was but, good, mm-hmm. but I don't want to sit here listening to a bunch of kids my age, like 13 year olds reading it out loud, one line by line, struggling with the language. It was just like, yeah. for someone with my brain, it was so painful. And so I was reading this line line novel and then I, um, I got caught and they confiscated my book mm-hmm. and I went to them and I was like, you shouldn't keep my book. It's my property and I want it back. And also I refuse to stand for the Pledge of Allegiance ever again because you can't force me to do that. I was just like that kid, you know, I was just like principles based and also mm-hmm. you suck. So <laughs> I was really, by the time I got into high school, I was so over school. Um, I had started like listening to the dead Kennedys and black flag. And like, I was just really, really like, okay, we are really living in a time where no one who needs things is getting them and everything else sucks. So I'm just going to make, I'm just going to make art and like draw a lot and I'm not going to pay attention in school. And at some point, for some reason, my parents were reading newspaper, saw an ad for a summer program at Homerton college in Cambridge that was like poetry and and uh and photography and my mom was like robin is the editor of the the literary magazine and she Mm -hmm. draws all the time and she takes photos maybe we should send her that like maybe that'll fix it so yeah it was like eight weeks maybe six weeks it it felt like a universe of time yes it was the first time i ever got on a plane to go anywhere out of the united states yeah i got a passport and i had to live in in cambridge i had my own room that looked out over the quad I had money. I could buy cigarettes and yeah. booze. Like at 16, nobody gave a shit. You were like an adult. Mm-hmm. And when I got back home to Florida, I was like, I'm never gonna stay here. Like this is the this is my mission in life right. is to be able to go live overseas. Like I was my thing. I was like, I'm gonna get a good education and then I'm gonna get a job that lets me travel the world. And I just I never wanna feel this trapped ever again. Like where I went to high school. 
you couldn't even like I couldn't do anything without a car. So like like yeah. the nearest grocery store was a ten minute car ride away, and Florida is boiling hot. And in yeah. case you can't look me up on the internet, I'm exceptionally pale, <laughs> so I did not do well with the heat and the and the sort of car culture of Central Florida. So I loved being able to just hop on the train and go into London and go to the yeah. you know National Gallery and mm-hmm. see museums stuff yeah. like that. I went to see the Arnold Feeney portrait like four times, yeah. you know. So I was really into that. And then when I got to college, yeah, I wanted to not take that class. And I was like, well, what can I do instead of taking this class? And they're like, oh, you can take this computer programming class. And it just was like, William Blake, make your own stuff. I can do art on the computer. Sure, I might as well learn how to program. Right. How hard can it be? Yeah. It was eight kids and right. it was a totally gender diverse there were it, two queer people in my class. Like wow. it was, it was, it was like 1991. It's interesting how they even just framed it. Like, what did you say the name was? Math for it was liberal computer, computer programming, programming as a liberal art. That's awesome. Yeah, uh-huh. Bill Sterner, shout out to you. Yeah, no, that's great. I was always looking for that and finding like in, in college, I matched up like my history degree with my computer science thing. Yeah, and like you know, there wasn't, there was never. It's really great that they have that, basically. Like that's, that's it awesome. was so groundbreaking, and we studied Sherry Turkle. We looked at um, we looked at Logo, and we read Seymour Papert. We we learned about the difference between pastiche programming and more architectural sort of type language programming. Um, and I just became so fascinated. Like one of our assignments early on was to build a Turing machine mm-hmm. in HyperCard that could multiply one number against another. Okay, and I built a recursive program mm-hmm. without knowing what recursion, recursion was. was right you and invented recursion i basically came to it from first principles <laughs> and my and my professor Bill was like how did you do this and mm-hmm. i was like do what he was like how did you write this recursive program i was like i don't know what you mean could you explain that and he was like did you look on the internet you know at that time we were on usenet uh-huh. at U chicago so you could actually use usenet um, and you could send rudimentary emails um, and so I was like, I don't know what you mean. And he was like, okay, I want you to draw a diagram of how the program works because he didn't believe that I had actually done it. Really? So Ooh. yeah. So I took a rainbow set of markers and I made a flow chart where each state was a different color. And then right. I, when I looped back, I'd be like, and then this orange state redoes like this many times. And then this blue state does this many times. And I gave him this, I, I, I like spent a lot of time. I remember right. being in my dorm room, like, oh, I, got, I fucked it up. And like, it was so hard to write out on paper what I had done in the program um, because it was difficult to explain with like human language, but I did do it. And he was like, okay, well, you get an A plus. And like, I really <laughs> think you should minor in, in computers. Like, yeah. I think you should, it was math back then. Right. So I kind of minored in programming. And I, for my dissertation, my BA. All right. Well, hold on one second. Yeah. Um, so... HyperCard is pretty flexible. Yeah. Right. Like in a sense of you can kind of like if you can imagine something, you can probably figure out a way to do something with it. Yeah, with buttons like, and callbacks. And yeah. Stuff. So I'm kind of I'm kind of fishing here, but like, did yeah. you did you do kind of like weird stuff with HyperCard? Like that's that's be interesting yeah. to talk about. Well, so yeah, my my actually like my thesis ended up being my BA thesis. I was able to I I wrote my own major, which was called uh, we had a program then called um, uh, General Studies in the Humanities. And Herman Seneco was the the guy that ran the program. Um, now it's called interdisciplinary studies. Um, and I wrote a proposal my freshman year, which was like, I want to study film, fine art, like art history, oral narrative, gender studies, and computer science. Like that's what I want to do. And then at the end, I'm going to write 
something like a program. Mm -hmm. So I submitted the thing and they were like, okay, let's see how this goes. And it ended, I think it ended up being the first digital BA that was submitted there. And Wayne Booth, did you, were you, did you have to take like physics and chemistry and no, stuff or they, they let no, you through they, just they like, let me go through with, with just the okay. programming class. So that's, I to, that's great because yeah. like computer science can exist purely on its own. It doesn't, it doesn't need all that. It, it wasn't, there was no computer science. So it was really, well, whatever, yeah. 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 So it was so. like computer programs yeah. or like, or, or making programs yeah. um, at the time. So I had taken, by the time I graduated, I had basically learned SuperCard and I built a interactive tone poem based on the work of Octavio Paz, who I really love. He wrote these circular poems that I really loved, mm -hmm. um, which was about my experience and my body of my gender. So it was a series of autobiographical snippets. Uh, I called it girl parts and I illustrated it by scanning in paper dolls, Letty Lane paper dolls specifically. Um, and I used all of the cutout clip art of all the outfits and the girls and stuff to illustrate it. And you would click through it and you would read a story about like, it's time to wash the car. Dad says, uh, I have to go back into the house and put on a bathing suit. Brian, my brother, like doesn't have to wear a bathing suit. He just wears shorts. My dad wears shorts. Why can't I wear shorts? Yep. And then like, if you clicked on Brian, you would get other stories and like it made a network of stories around me at that age. And then as you progress the, the narrative over time, like shorts would come up and it would take you back to that story. And now it would be like my dad, from my perspective as a teenager, like oppressing me, you know, yeah. with this narrative that like, I have to wear a bathing suit, like how uncomfortable it felt, like realizing as I got older that like I was supposed to wear clothes that made me look more femme, but that were also incredibly tight or itchy, like lace underpants that went over your diapers. I remember sitting in church for hours in these fucking itchy over diaper shorts and just mm -hmm. being like, I just want to go home and build stuff in the garage with my dad. Or like, I want to go run around in the woods or like blow up GI Joe's or whatever I wanted to do. Um, and so like things like this, like the constant feeling of like wanting to go back in time or forward in time, be older or younger so that I didn't have to feel oppressed by all these clothings. And then as you kept going through, it was like, gosh, like my poor dad, like, having to tell this like six-year-old or five-year-old girl like we live in a world where you can't be this way because yep. you'll get predated or like the neighbors will think we're horrible people or like mm -hmm. whatever that i mean like if we lived in sweden it wouldn't have been an issue yep. you know but it was like trying to kind of unpack all that stuff and so as you read the narrative it changed their memories and so that was kind of the whole idea of the thesis was like can i write a story about myself and my experience of being gendered by my parents in society um, that is both critical but also has care that yeah. like I, that I can understand that like also it's a never-ending cycle and like that kind of thing right. so but I still had to print it out as a document because <laughs> Booth who was on my committee didn't use computers <laughs> so I had to make it like a choose your own adventure like where I numbered all the links and stuff so it was printed out and delivered but um but yeah, so I wrote that in Supercard and then I graduated and I was working at the computer lab at school um, and I had nothing else to do. Right. So I ended up just applying to be a grad student in computer science and that was what happened. I ended up becoming a computer science grad student for eight years. Wow. 
Okay. Yeah. Um, so first of all, so you were making you were making experimental interactive fiction. Yeah, I guess. Right. <laughs> Did, was this influenced by anything? Because there were people who were doing stuff like this. It just wouldn't have been easy to find the, because if no, Muhammad died. Or at the time that I did this, I had no contact with anyone in the games industry. And then when I got into grad school, one of my office but I mean, mates, were you playing any games whatsoever? No, I only read books. I I I, I guess I would say at the computer lab, I played SimCity, which I loved. Right. Um, and I had played some Asteroids games on the Apples that I, or the Macs that I was, I was working on. So I had three labs that I had to manage when I was doing my hours there. One was a Mac computer lab, one was a Next computer lab, and one was an SGI lab. So I would like go in there and like, you know, sometimes I would like print out images for D&D camps and right. stuff like that. Like, ooh, fong shading. Um, but that was back when like if you clicked on a link on the internet, you had to wait for it to download. Like, ooh, I'm going to go to the NASA website and see the telephoto or that um, the uh, telescope photos of Saturn, you know, right. and then it would take like an hour to download. You print it out. We had a matrix printer, a wax printer. that was like you, if you weren't at the computer lab, you couldn't print on it. Um, and that was, so it was back then when like having access to computers was like exceptionally rare. And I was so lucky. And so I was really into the idea of being in the lab and I did play some city on the lab computer. But I didn't have a computer in my room. Yeah. I didn't have my own. I mean, it was it was it would have been exorbitant. Yeah. So I had not played any video games. And then I did uh, my first year of grad school. Um, I had a, a roommate in grad school, Richard Rouse, who's a game developer now. Oh, um, we, yeah. I know Richard. And uh, we, he made a couple of games. And then he was friends with some of the people at Bungie. So I met some of those dudes. And I played Myst. Mm-hmm. And I played um, Myth. Mm-hmm. And I did some screams for Richard's games. Um, and so that was my first experience of game development was meeting Richard and talking about video games. And he was a grad student like you? He was a grad student like me in the, in the, in the CS program. And he ended up dropping out and just going right into video games like right away, like within, I think, a couple of years. And made a bunch of kick-ass games, actually. Yep. Huh. Yep. Um, okay. Cool. So you were, you know, you were, I mean... You were a master's student and then a, then a PhD I was, student? Is yeah, so basically I enrolled for a master's and in my first year, that was when I met my crew of people that were like into video games. And then um, uh, I started dating one of my colleagues and then we basically like moved in together and he is also a game developer, Rob Thomas. Uh, he's actually out in Austin now. Um, and we were lucky because Rob's mom really like was into the fact that he was a programmer in high school. So he had a really cool computer. By then I got a computer for the house. We had a computer, like a Mac at home. And he showed me like Prince of Persia on the Mac. And then we got a PlayStation. Okay. And then I played like Tomb Raider and I, <laughs> you know, like, um, uh, we got a, GameCube or no? What was it? N64. Was an N64. Yep. So I played the Mario 3D, yep. Mario 64. Mm. Um, and uh, I also played, um, oh man, I'm blanking on it because we're in a different time zone. Well, let's. The, stra oh. the strategy game, the one that we were talking about the other night. Um, dang. You know, where you're, you're dealing with the aliens on the planet. Like Starcraft? No, or no. Like an RTS or a different type of it's, strategy game? It's the turn-based strategy game where you have to deal with, like, the aliens land and then you go and you kill them. Why can I not remember the name of this game? 
It's super popular. Oh, XCOM. XCOM. Dirt. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> so let's just edit all that out. Actually, honestly, we both failed there. Yeah, yeah, no, the no, turn-based no, yeah, game where, where game, you, yes, the aliens yes, land, yes, you kill them. In the mid-90s, whatever yes, that game so, was. Whatever the game was. So Rob and I moved in together. We had a Mac, and so I got to play Prince of Persia. And then we got a PlayStation. And on the PlayStation 1, I played Tomb Raider, like, start to finish in, like, as little time as possible. Yeah. So tell me, I mean, like... And Tell me what this was doing to you. Like, how did so, you, like how did you feel about video games? Like, why was it mattering to you? So when I played Myst, and then I played XCOM and Tomb Raider and Prince of Persia, I was like, "Holy shit!" <laughs> like, video games are so much cooler than when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And look at this art. Like, OMG! Like, she has real hair, and yeah. like, like. You can see the flashes when she shoots the gun and like, yeah, she has gigantic boobs that are totally unrealistic, but who cares? This is so amazing. Like there's a real lion in there or whatever, you know, a tire. I was just like blown away. Like Miss was so gorgeous and so atmospheric. And I was like, how did this happen when I was in college? Like SimCity was cool. Like no shade, Will, but like it didn't look at all like it looked like a step up of like 8-bit graphics it didn't look like 3d graphics Mm -hmm. and i was just like this is what the sgis are for this is what computers are for like i could make a story-based game about my life in a computer and it could have me walking around in it i wouldn't have to use little cutouts of paper dolls that i scanned at like 8-bit resolution and then uploaded to a shitty supercard you know like with very bad resolution and pixelation and dithering and stuff and I like I remember specifically looking at the little QuickTime movie window on Mist and thinking, how do they do it? Yeah. Like how do they do this? Like, yeah. They must have so many computers. They must be so rich. You know, now I know them. <laughs> but that wasn't <laughs> the case at all. Rand was not at all rich. But they were trying so hard to innovate in a space that was like completely wide open. And so then Richard and them taught me about like, oh yeah, you can go to the bookstore and buy games on a disc and then you can put the disc in the computer and like, I knew none wow. of that. Yeah, I, had, I had literally <laughs> no like, experience of that. So yeah. my, my first experience was like, there's disc games, there's a, there's Mac games and can they're you, really cool. And I know you, people that make them. And then also, this is a hard question, but thanks. can you talk a little bit about why you didn't know any of that? I think because no one in my community, I mean, I was at the university of Chicago, which is about living the life of the mind. And I wanted to graduate in three years. And so what I did was I read constantly. Like I have a massive library at home and Mm -hmm. I still have almost all the books that I read in college. I was getting exposed to Aristotle, Plato. I was reading feminist critical theory about gender. And like, I was reading like, yeah, like, you know, The Woman in the Body, which is a whole book about like, just racist and like sexist birth practices or like um you know these books about like being educated in desire where like it was an, a sociological analysis of frat culture and sorority culture and how essentially like that was arranged marriage for white people right. and like <laughs> i was reading about pharaonic circumcision and having like debates in class about like you know, it's my body and it's my right. And if I believe that pharaonic circumcision keeps spirits from getting into my womb, like who are you from a different culture to tell me that I can't do this to myself or my child? Like these kinds of conversations were in my space. Like I was 
reading books like How the Irish Became White and like watching my fellow students protest the author saying he was racist when he came to campus. I was like listening to Riot Girl music. I was writing um, a lot in my journal and I was I was an, uh, an illustrator for The Baffler, mm-hmm. which is Tom Frank's book about the commodification of dissent. I was like thinking a lot about what is wrong with us. And I was going to school at the University of Chicago, which is this little at the time was a little tiny community that was walled in by police Mm. in a ghetto. And if you were a black student on campus, you were getting aggressed every time you left campus and came back. Yeah. You know, my, my, one of my best friends, Rachel uh, Fumia on campus was like in the organization of black students. I was in the W O M Y N S union. I was like, I was exceptionally, you know, like active in uh, my friend Rishi Nath was putting together a a record uh, called no more prisons. And so I spent a bunch of time working on this anti-prison record and like helping him like with this after school capoeira program where kids were right. like graffiti bombers and then like they were doing they were doing ciphers and then dancing and we would make red beans and rice it was vegan and all stuff so yeah. i was super so, in it yeah. you know so you had a computer games had literally nothing to do with any of that yeah like, so you had an om- omnivorous you know, yeah. approach to culture and you were sucking things in as a student right yeah yeah uh, which is great that's jp I mean, chill's rap show too like that was the first time i like that time period is like i heard blue flowers like i I learned about Stetsasonic and like, I was like, I had always been into hip hop as a kid cause I grew up in New York and Jam on it was on the radio when I was eight. So like, I'd always loved hip hop, but like, I didn't know anything about independent hip hop really. I just yeah. knew that there were a few people and I'd heard a few, like I'd heard Drive Called Quest and De La Soul, but that was like it. And then suddenly like my whole life got blown up. Like JP show was amazing. And then he has a record label, like record store and like dusty groove and all this stuff. So I was just so in the, that cultural space, drum and bass music going yeah. out all the time, going to see live jazz. Yeah. And I was also learning how to be an adult, like how to drink wine or yeah. read a book and have a dinner party. And like the focus that you see was like everyone in the first two years takes the same sort of general curriculum. There's like a core and then in your second two years, you specialize. And I sucked up everything out of the core that I could in my first year and then immediately started taking graduate classes and like trying to finish my dissertation and more BA. Uh, and I didn't have time to fuck around on a computer. Like when right. I was in the lab, I was actually helping people learn how to program Pascal or like print stuff or, you know, like check the printer again, yeah. <laughs> check the queue. You know, that was the most common thing yeah. I do was help people with printer jams. But so I guess what I'm wondering is like when you, when you did sort of discover video games. Yeah. At that point, you had a broad base of knowledge, you know, oh, in, totally. in a lot of different disciplines. And and I couldn't read for pleasure because I had crammed so hard. Okay, yeah. And um, I guess I would wonder if, like, video games felt like a step back culture-wise or if you saw some potential. Like, is there some potential you know, there? Or, I like- saw them as being so far ahead of what I knew as gaming that I was just obsessed with 3D engine development. Like I went okay. from being like interested in playing, you know, games as a kid because it was like a toy mm-hmm. to suddenly being like, holy shit, people are building 3D game engines. Right. And that was when I really started. So it's kind of like the artist, the art, art, the art, pure, like pure art side. Of totally. Like totally. You saw like, okay, this is yeah. going somewhere. It's like doubling whatever. I mean, nothing in computer science was cool. Like yeah. everything was bad. The Pixar was literally like <laughs> the lamp and that's it. Yeah. 
there was like no, I mean, if you wanted to make a rendered sphere with like a marble texture on it, it took a day, Yeah. you know? So my experience was how on earth can I be playing on this CD-ROM of 3D rendered landscape? True, Tomb Raider had a lot of dropouts and there was a lot of missing textures and holes and stuff. But like, it looked like magic to me. I had like, my computer science education had not prepared me for real-time graphics. I had yeah. no idea what was going on. Okay, so did you, was there a, a graphics program there they had there that you were able to get No, on, no, and actually this is kind of the hilarious thing. So I started doing my master's and I started getting interested in video games. And then there was another, there was another, there was another, there was a professor there um, that uh, named uh, Charles, who I, I really, really wanted to, work with because he had written a natural language dissertation uh, at Yale and um, he started getting into games too and I I ended up introducing him to Cosmic Encounter okay and we started playing Cosmic Encounter and like other kind of board games and right. then another grad student in my group who was I was in AI and I was looking at robotics and real-time knowledge representation and find me system so like like essentially collaborative filtering so I was kind of testing what I wanted to be doing um, as in my early master's work, one of my colleagues, Mark, did a um, a program to play SimCity mm -hmm. called Mayor. And it was essentially a logic system that could play the game and like make decisions and try to build the best SimCity. And I was like, that's fucking cool. Like, I want to do that. Like, I want to work on that stuff. And so I started to crawl my network through the guys at Bungie and, and, uh, uh, my friend, whose name I just forgot, uh, Rich, Richard Rouse, um, I started to crawl my network through Richard Rouse and the guys that I knew at Bungie um, early on, Matt and a few other people, to try and figure out, like, okay, who can I talk to about video games? And I also started looking on the internet for books about video games, yeah. and I found The Art of Computer Game Design by Chris Crawford, yep. and I bought, like, a really rare four-color copy of it wow. off of like some rare book site, uh -huh. which is my most treasured possession of all time. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. And I was like reading this and there was this phrase in there that was like, to build a program that can respond in real time and seem convincing like with a narrative turn, you know, essentially would be amazing. And yet we waste all of our time on these like shooting simulations and like yeah. running around. And, and I was that like, was probably 1982? Yeah. Right. So yeah. like, I mean, geez, you know, that was, it was like, I read the sentence and I, and I was like, I want to, I want to work on that. Like yeah. I, so my first proposal that I ever submitted for graduate research was I submitted to NASA a proposal. This is like, you have to remember, this is before the Newton or even like anything like a cell phone existed. I wanted to build a cube called a story cube, which would be a, a cube, a, you know, a six sided object where each screen was a touch screen and you could store memories in it, like videotape yourself talking about stuff. And then there was an index that was like, you could, you could index these stories and you could give it to your family. They would put all their memories of you and like all your childhood stuff in there. And then when you went into a spaceship to travel to Mars, you would have it with you so that you wouldn't lose your family. Okay. That was all my right. proposal. It did not get approved. <laughs> But that was that what I was cool, thinking though. about. That was what I, I was like, yeah. I want I want to build weird story things that like 
transcend time the way that the Bible has transcended time. I, I seriously considered when I was graduating going into divinity because I had I did a seriously deep investigation into religion and like the ways in which we create meaning and like what does it mean to be conscious and like to tell tell stories and like why do we tell these same ritualistic stories about like killing animals or people or whatever to each other. I was really obsessed with that. But then I just realized like if I go into divinity, like I'm just going to end up hanging out with philosophers all the time. And most of them are just so inward. And I was like, sure. I'll get depressed and weird if I do that. Like I, yeah. I started to know by this time as well that I was not neurotypical. I did not have the language for that, but I was right. realizing that like some things made me really obsessive and I would like not be able to sleep if I didn't. In a bad way. Yeah. Like in a bad way. Yeah. And what were, what were they? Well, programming was one of them. So when I was in grad school, I had an experience like my second year or third year of grad school, where I had an assignment to program a robot, a simulated robot um, to do this uh, trash task. It's like a NSF, like, uh, you know, DARPA kind of like, you know, yep. benchmark that they had set. And uh, we were all given this assignment in the class and I was working on the assignment and I couldn't get the simulation to work right. It, the sensors on my simulated robot, I wasn't doing the right kind of sensing. And so it was pinging, it was doing sonar in the simulated environment and I was not managing the numbers correctly and it was just crashing all the time and getting stuck. And I was just like, I'm gonna finish this. And at that time I had my computer in my room and I programmed it and I stayed up all night and then I woke up kind of like after a nap in the middle of the day and I just got up and I made myself coffee and went back to the computer and I started programming. And I did that for two days. And then I stood up from the computer because I had to pee and I passed out and hit my head. And I called 911 and they came and they got me and they took me to the emergency room and they were like, were you in the desert? <laughs> you are so dehydrated. Yeah. Like you, you, you're like, you're, we're going to give you like two bags of saline and you need to like go home and whatever you're doing, like you need to have water with you at all times and you need to drink water. You need to set an alarm and drink water every hour. And that was when I realized like, I just, I had no perception of time while I was yeah. working on that project. Like I literally had no idea what had happened. And I was like, Oh, <laughs> like I'm stubborn. Like the only way I even get ended up getting through my, PhD and almost graduating was just by insisting that I belong there and that I could do it. There were no other girls. Right. It was, t it was all totally alien to me. Like I literally didn't even own a computer until I was 21. So sure. like, yeah, I mean, obviously women were rarities in programs like this back then, but, it, but you know, probably a number of the ones who were there at least had like a maybe a typical path into it maybe so I, had, I, I yeah I you mean, had I, a completely odd path in yeah it was and... totally weird and i also like i was genderqueer so i cross-dressed almost all the time by that by then i was always wearing like ties and right. and jackets and stuff and like i had I mean, very I, short hair and you know i was very very butch and i also like did you feel like there was anyone like you no, not until I met my friend Cass, who I'm still friends with. Yeah. Ran into each other at the, <laughs> in the women's bathroom. And she thought I was cute and invited me to a birthday party. Um, <laughs> and we didn't end up dating, but we ended up being really close friends. And yeah. she's also on the spectrum, and she's also a kick-ass programmer. Yeah. And she's made a life for herself being a consulting programmer, and she's also an amazing sailor. Um, and she was the first person that I felt like was like me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what is it? It's hard. Look, I... I won't understand, right? Yeah. Like because 
you know, I look like everyone else in my CS program. Yeah. You know, like what? Well, yeah. Why? Like, why is that hard? I mean, it's a, like a very blunt question, but. It's hard because when you don't know what to do, you don't know who to talk to. Because if you ask the people that all look the same, then you're showing them that you're not them. Yeah. And it just feels like, well, if I pretend that I know, then I can do it. And once I do it, then I won't feel that way anymore. And yeah. so, you know, I think a lot of why I was so, so, so obsessed with like winning yeah. against the computer was that like, I had grown up in a world where being in the middle was not okay. Like it was either be an artist or be a scientist. It was yeah. either be a girl or be a boy. It was like either like girls or like boys. It was like, you, you have to be a vegetarian or you're a terrible person. Like I, I always felt like the world was filled with, like you have to be a Republican or a Democrat. Like I just felt the world was filled with binaries and I never understood why everything had to be like, yes or no. Like, and the academia, especially now that I'm a professor, I see it all the time. Yeah, sure. There's such a culture of It's a giant classification of everything. Yeah. There's like this performance of authority and the performance of yes, no, left, right, all that stuff. And for me being exposed to that was like very painful, but I did not have the language to understand it. And so actually people have asked me this. Like when I first met the people in computer gaming that I really clicked with, it was like John Blow and Chris Hecker and Doug Church and Chris mm. Butcher and like the guys from Valve. And like, I mean, when I met John Carmack, I didn't find him difficult at all. Like it was totally fine. Like yeah. everybody that I knew was on the spectrum and yeah. they were all fine. Like it was just like we were going to argue about computer stuff. Yeah. And I didn't even really have the capacity to argue at the level that the rest of them did. But it felt like, okay, these are my people because right. they were interested in the middle. They were interested in how do I make an engine? Like, I mean, Doug wrote the very first 3D graphics yeah. engine mm -hmm. for Ultima Underworld, right? Yeah. Like he beat everybody else by yeah. a narrow margin, but like he was actively engaged in trying to solve the problem of deciphering how to build real-time 3D images that, that felt real right. in a game context. And like those were my people. And they were more my people than traditional computer scientists who were mathematicians. Right. And really interested in collaborative filtering and essentially building Facebook. Right. Like my professors at that time wanted to be on the cover of Wired Magazine for building the first decider system that could recommend wine or food to you or movies. Like those are the kinds of things I was working on in my graduate degree. And then the other option was to work on robots that were search and destroy. Yeah. You know, like my research was search and rescue robotics. But the difference between search and rescue and search and destroy is one instruction. Yeah, yeah. Like I didn't want to go work at Rand Corporation yeah. and I really didn't want to study how to sell people stuff by suggesting stuff to them on their computer. That was like just the exact opposite of all of that stuff we talked about earlier, yeah. like all of the experimental jazz and punk rock and community activism. Right. What's, was like, what's I don't want to point do that. to learning yeah. to program if you're not going to do the thing you want to do with it. Right. When I really wanted to make experimental art with computers, but it was like, well, I'd have to stay in school forever. And, and like, I started getting close to graduating from grad school 
And I was like, I need to do something more marketable than just like these weird robots. And so I went to my advisor at the time. Um, by then I had matriculated from the University of Chicago to Northwestern because UC felt that AI was too applied and they wanted us to move on. <laughs> so we moved to Northwestern and I ended up leaving my current advisor and, and being in Ian Horsewell's group, um, who was amazing and I still love very dearly. Um, and he was like, he came to me and was like, I'm trying to start a group for women in the department. And there were three other women. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you would be willing to come to like a meeting for women in CS. And I was like, I'm actually going to drop out. Mm. Like, I'm done. And he was like, why? And I was like, because I'm having problems with my advisor. He wants me to work on these collaborative filtering systems to sell people stuff. And I don't care about them. And I'm just like, I'm kind of done, you know? Yeah. And he was like, well, why don't you come work for me? And I was like, well, I don't know. He's like, I've started working with Microsoft on this game stuff. And like Aaron and Maggie are working on game stuff. Why don't you come and work on game stuff? Had you thought about that at all until then? I didn't think that it was a pathway that was open to me because I had spent the last four years working on collaborative filtering AI and some, you know, some NLP. But um, so I was like, really? And he's like, yeah, I've got money and I have mm -hmm. a spot. And then you'll be in an environment where you don't feel like you're not welcome. Right. My advisor was kind of a shithead, um, my, my previous advisor. And uh, so I was like, okay. So I went to my other advisor and I was like, I'm going to change groups. And no lie, he never looked me in the eye again. <laughs> Every single time I passed him in the hallway, he pretended I was dead. <laughs> never in a meeting, acknowledged my presence, never once spoke to me again. It was like I was dead to him. Yeah. Very painful. Yeah, that's but sucks. I'm a stubborn bitch, so I stayed. Wow. <laughs> and I started hacking Half-Life and building a dynamic difficulty adjustment system for Half-Life. I was like, okay, I'm going to build a system that extends your life if you're sucking and makes it harder if you're good. And then I'm going to do human subject trials and see how people react to the idea of being helped or harmed by the game. Wow, that's yeah. extensive. Yeah, it was. It was fun. How did you do that? I just did it. I, I, I downloaded a mod called Case Closed, and then I started modding the the way that bullets worked in it. And actually I found the thing that I found out in my dissertation that I never published is that um, you can actually update the sort of number on the screen that is your health uh -huh. in real time. And people are change blind because they're totally focused on the center of the screen and like surviving and they don't see the number go up and down. So you can just, you can just change, change it, it arbitrarily, arbitrarily, not arbitrarily, but the way you think it should be changed to make their experience better. And the second thing I learned was that you can extend a person's life if they don't play shooters and they're not experts at it, they experience it as slow, yeah. torturous, horrible experience. Yeah. And if you make the game harder for someone who's good at it, they love it until you tell them. Yeah. Well, that's the that's the rub with dynamic difficulty. We can have, like, have a whole like half hour discussion about just that. Like it's a yeah. it's sort of a holy grail white whale thing that like you know if you figure out to do just the right way that no one really is going to pay attention to it. Then but the minute that they know there's a rubber band in there, they yeah. get mad and like they they transfer all their failures onto the robot and they transfer all their successes onto themselves. Yeah, which is hilarious. And so I was like, wow. So I was finishing the human subject study and then I was coding it and writing up my dissertation. And I had this like existential crisis, which was that by then I had it's also... Funny, it's funny. Sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. I want you to get back to this. Yeah, but, no, it's fine. But it's funny. I said like, how did you do this? And you answered like the easy part, which is like yeah. how you coded it. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah, to yeah. me in my head, I'm like, how did you do this? Like the actual psychology study aspect of this. Yeah. Like if it's done well, actually sounds 
to me, difficult. Right? It, it was difficult. And actually, I think the reason I didn't finish my PhD is because I did the IRB study. You have to submit human subjects requirements and IRB at the time required that I get written consent from everybody. And I had to write this really long consent letter that was like, video games are violent. You might feel oh, weird geez. after you play them. Wow. Like, okay. it was like a whole thing. And so it took me six months to get the study approved. Then I had to get money for the study. And then I had to buy video games and like give the games away and the, yep. give the incentive for participation in the study. And it took about a year to do the study. So I finished and then I had a year of like administrative at, at adversarial experiences with IRB and my department and also there was some sexual harassment stuff that happened with one of the secretaries there with my former advisor and like I started just feeling like really like the academic environment was not conducive to my success yeah and I started realizing also from talking to some other friends who'd matriculated into postdocs that like it wasn't going to be much better anywhere else yeah so I was working on the dissertation and I was trying to run the study it was exhausting. I had no help. Yeah. It and sounds I was, hard. Yeah, I was just I watching mean, people. At, at the end fail of it, did you, me. did you learn something that you felt was valuable? Yes, I learned that. So there was a, it was a very popular thing to say at the time. There was a, a lot of um, AI conferences that were happening. In fact, I organized a couple. So I guess there's some things to talk about in there. But um, I started working on AAAI conference and video games. And uh, it's actually where I met Will, and that was where I ended up leaving to go to work in games. But oh, okay. yeah, but I um, when I was working on the conference, one of the most popular things to say, like a SIGGRAPH conference or a AAAI conference about games, was that games AI were, was gaming's killer app. That if you designed AI that was good enough, you could solve game design problems. Uh, and I did not believe this. <laughs> I do not believe. That. I did not believe it. Um, I was by then. I was like well versed in the psychology of design. Yeah. Um, I had been myself in therapy for a long time, and so I'd, I'd learned to sort of pay attention to myself and my body. And I realized that like most of the people around me were really on the spectrum. Yeah. And they preferred the world where a computer could yeah. tell them what it to might, do. It might solve the game design problem for them. It, it's possible. It'll, but... it'll, it'll learn to play chess. <laughs> yeah. You know, it'll learn to search a finite space. Um, or it can do really good Markov chain models for making decisions in an unknown space um, better than a human can because we're bad at that. Yeah. But it cannot make a story with feelings. It can't solve Chris Crawford's online problem. Yeah. And I knew this. And everyone around me was getting all this grant money to prove the opposite. And my dissertation proved to me that they were wrong and that design had to incorporate difficulty adjustment at a fundamental level. Like if you wanted to make an innovative game design and use AI or like some kind of a mechanism that like would be automatic from the game side, it would have to be like Mule. Yeah. It would have to be built in from the ground up and no amount of bandwidth. You mean that the, the AI, you don't have a game that's already set. And, and then, then, the AI then slap an later. AI on it. Like the yeah. AI is just part of the, the game. AI part. is game design in yeah. that context. And All so right. there's no such thing as not design. Yeah. And when I realized that, then I had this existential crisis because it was like, well, where am I going to go? You know, what am I going to do? And so that was in like 2004. But by then, I'm I sorry. also was hanging out with a lot of people that were in games. Who were all the people who were thinking this? They were all the, were they all academics? Um, they, were all, they were mostly academics. Okay. Um, and there was like a, there was a real movement in academic AI towards uh, system design. I'd have to go back and actually look at it, it all. But like Mike Sellers was in there. There were mm. a lot, there were a lot of people in there at that time. It was yeah. like a, it was a hot new field. AI had had like an AI winter 
where they had promised everybody they were yeah, going to solve sure. everyone's problems. Yeah. And I came into AI when it was still recovering from that. And this is like 2000, 2001, 2002, like Microsoft had a game gaming cruise that we went on all these gaming academics. And there were a lot of people in that space doing research with Microsoft research yeah. around how AI was going to solve all of our game design problems. And, you know, it funded my research. So I'm not, you know, I'm not going to poo poo it. You know, the money was good, but, um, but I did not believe in the project. Yep. I thought that the project was really bogus. Like I was remembering this and being like, that game, you could have put an AI in there. It just would have made the puzzles harder. Sure. Like that wouldn't have yeah. solved the game design at all. Yeah. Well, I've always believed AI programmers are just game designers, you know. Yeah. And like, it, you know, companies that understand that will hire certain types of AI programmers, you yeah. know, and it makes a big difference. Yeah. I mean, if you want to build something that will recognize sort of images and pictures, you know, like you want to build a porn finder or you want to build like, you know, like a, like a, like a, a language filter that will find all the swears. Like, yeah, you can do that. You can build a training set and you can do it. But when it comes down to doing what Chris was talking about, generating a novel response from a computer that feels like it's written into the story naturally, that is so fucking hard. And like, the other thing I learned during this time was that like programming isn't about being good at programming for games. Like, Looking at the Half-Life code based, like, again, no shade. <laughs> sure. um, it was just filled with these stubs that went back to nowhere. Yeah. And, like, there was a whole, like, blood smell system in there that, like, the monsters would be able to smell you the more wounded you were. Oh, it never got implemented. It was all so like classic And, like, these classes, <laughs> like, entire, yeah. like, files of all this. And I'm like, what the fuck is all this? And yeah. I remember and The saying, hard part about that is if, you, if you're wandering through that, you assume it matters. Right? Yeah. And you I'm spend like, a day. And then you, you realize that the threads cut off and you're just like, oh, There's this doesn't here. exist. There's yeah. nothing here. This is a system that never got finished. Like, yeah. you know, backslash, backslash, finish later, you know, yeah, yeah. or remove, yeah. you know. So I really, I was learning that. And then at the same time, like in that same period when I was working on my dissertation, um, I also started hanging out with Chris and John and Doug and all those guys and doing the indie game jams. And so I also was. Prone- Wait, so back up. How did you meet them? I met them. Uh, it's funny. Um, I met them. I went to this conference on narrative intelligence okay. in Cape Cod that Michael Matias who's, and Noah Wardropfer and are my colleagues at UC Santa Cruz now organized. And Ian sent me there right after basically I decided to switch groups. Okay. He was like, there's a really cool group of people that's yep. studying the kind of stuff that you're interested in. I'm sending you to this conference. What what year would this be at this point? It would have been probably 2000, maybe, yeah, 2001, maybe. Okay. And maybe 2002. And I went to the conference and I was like, so jazzed. I met like all these really cool people. And then one of the people at the conference was my friend Adam, who is still a friend. And he was like, I'm going to go back to New York City. I live in Greenpoint. And there's like a cool game thing happening. Do you want to come to like New York? Like just instead of flying back to Chicago, take the train down to New York with me and then we'll hang out at this thing and then you can fly out of New York. So I wrote Ian and was like, can I change my ticket? And he was like, totally. So I went to this thing and it was a conference that was being put on by Eric Zimmerman. Okay. Yep. And um, it had a, he had built a a warm up game, like a card game to, to sort of open it up. Where you had to trade cards with people to win and you were competing for like a playstation or something and i was like the second like in i was like yep. runner-up basically mm-hmm. because i was like a super nerd and i wanted to win but i met all these people yeah so that was like i started meeting people through the, the icebreaker game so thank you eric and then i met eric 
and like probably Frank Lance and a few other people there. But then um, there was a panel on stage. Uh, my friend Bernie Yee was on the panel and Doug Church was on the panel. And um, they were talking about AI and games. And Bernie said something. I don't even remember what it was. And I just like my hand went up at the Q&A and I was like, I am an AI researcher and I don't believe that you can build that. Like, I think what you just said is like a thousand times harder than what you know. And I just am saying that like, <laughs> like call me when it's built. Like okay. I would put money on it that you can't do this essentially. And afterwards he came down and I was really trying to talk to this woman that was on the panel uh, Jay-Z Hertz. I really want Jay-Z Hertz. I really wanted to meet her. And she was mobbed by guys. Mm. And I remember being like, ooh, sitting around <laughs> in my overalls and like, ooh, like, ooh. And he just came over and he was like, hey. And I was like, what's up? And he was like, you sure have a lot of opinions. And I was like, yeah, I do have opinions. Like, I'm actually like, I don't think what you said, it makes any sense. Anyway, I'm trying to talk to this girl. <laughs> and he was just like, can we talk? And so we started talking and like, he was like, I'm working on a game design for this cool game and it has this like dynamic economy that's going to be managed by an AI. Like, would you consider programming it? And I was uh -huh. like, I guess, like, I don't know, like whatever. And long story short, that game did get made, but I met Doug through him and then Mark LeBlanc and then all the Looking Glass oh, guys. Yeah, sure. And so like a few year, maybe a year later, uh, I went to the Looking Glass Wake yeah, uh, okay. it was a party at the house of like Greg Lepicolo and all the, the like all the Terry and all the, the harmonics people. Harmonics didn't exist yet then, and then I met more people there that were like in that iron sort sort of iron storm like you know mm -hmm. kind of looking glass scene, yep. and then that was just like the end of it. Like from there, point, you know, I met I so. met Chris and Jen at GDC because Chris uh, was dating her and she was running GDC, and then I met Alan Yu, and then. From there, it was like, I just met everyone that I knew. And like, I was the weird AI nerd. So I like helped organize the first educational summits mm -hmm. at GDC while I was a grad student. I worked on the IGA education uh, framework for trying to get people to teach games at a college level. Like I had the the privilege of, you know, meeting, you know, Randy and, and, and talking with like Henry Jenkins and Tracy Fullerton at the beginning of all those programs and being like, you've got to make sure that people learn how to do both the art part and the computer science part. And like, then I worked on the game jams with them. Like the first game jam that I attended, I just was like, I was the monkey that made the physics engine work on all the, on all the machines. Like I did all the admin cause I had run a computer lab. Right. I worked with Ahmed Binstock and Chris on that stuff. And then I started getting like the gumption to kind of like make my own things at them. And then like, I started thinking about like, wow, what if I got a job right, you're where still, I did this? You're I was still, still in grad you, school. So you're still doing this Half-Life thing. I was working right? on the Half-Life. I was actually working on a game about prison before that. I had a game that I was writing. It was a prison simulator. And then I moved into the Half-Life thing because it would be even more commercially acceptable than this like weird art game that I wanted to build about the systems and commercially you mean like in, in the academic world uh, no as in like i could probably get a job working on a video game oh, okay. if i if i made something that modded half-life because yeah, half-life was like the hotness at the time sure yeah so i made an executive decision that my research should make me appealing, appealing as a programmer yeah. and then i met will at a conference that i had organized and did you think you'd have a like at this point did you think you'd have a hard time getting a job if you just started applying or to did you totally okay. I, I i i did you but you didn't try at all no 
no, I, I kept doing the academic thing and being like, well, someday maybe somebody will let me like study their game. Even though you're like starting to get deeply connected with like GDC and you kind of know. Yeah, no, I, I didn't think anybody would hire me at all. Did like, you ever talk to anyone about like. At that time? Yeah. I mean, maybe Doug, but like that was it. Like, I mean, I met all these people. Like I met Warren Spector and I started talking to him all the time and. You know, at that back then, like, you couldn't get game design knowledge unless you read Game Developer Magazine or you, right. or you knew the people. Like, there was no access. Yeah. So I was just, like, a voracious learner. Yeah. I considered myself – I was kind of, like, everybody's pet. Like, Robin wants to talk to you about your brilliant ideas, I think. It was like, okay, yeah, dump it on me. Like, I want to know. Like, I want to – eventually, I'm going to be an academic teaching kids how to do this, so I want to know how to do it. Right. And I, that was definitely like, how I thought of myself. Yeah. It was just – it was your mind frame. Basically, still. Yeah, right. totally. And yeah. like, I didn't, there were no women in my community. Like, I didn't know a single female game developer. I mean, I remember reading, meeting Brenda Romero like years later and being like, oh, cool. There was like another lady doing this. Like, I didn't even, I mean, I didn't know. Yeah. You know, that, yeah, that so women ever did anything. Yeah. You know, like, I just was like, oh, it's all dudes. And they're all friends with each other and they're all doing this hardcore 3D graphics programming, which I'm not good at. Yeah. Bizarrely, it seems like there are more women developers in like the early 80s when it would have been hard for you to have any visibility into that. Yeah, no, exactly. Right. And the, even by the time I started studying programming, it was already happening that, like, by the time I was teaching at Northwestern, say, in the early 2000s, and then, you know, like, say, 2002, 3, 4, 5, everybody that came to learn programming wanted to be Bill Gates. Yeah. You know, the, the, the mythology of programming was be the guy that runs a startup and makes a bajillion dollars, be a billionaire. And I didn't get into computer science for that. I was like a weird art programmer. So like to me, Sherry Turkle and Seymour Papert were like, that was the model. So I was like, well, maybe I'll end up at the media lab. Right. You know, that was what I thought. And then, yeah, I mean, I put together this conference and, and Will came and he talked about The Sims 2. And he had this really funny demo where he had made like Britney Spears and two stormtroopers that were in love with her. He was totally using all these illegal mods in the game, which I thought was so cool. <laughs> And he ran the simulator and they basically like got so mad that they both self-immolated and then she left to live with their ashes in this, in this house. Uh, and I thought it was so funny. And afterwards I was, I was like, just went up to him at the, like, you know, at the place where you get free cheese and like shitty Kool-Aid yeah. or wine. And I was like, can I ask you a question? I'm like, and he was like, boo, 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 boo. we talked. <laughs> That's for, how it went. Yeah, that, and we talked for a while. And then I was like, he's like, what do you do? And I was like, oh, I'm an academic computer scientist. He's like, well, you sound like a game designer to me. <laughs> Good for well. Yeah, and I was Good like, well. so yeah. So when I finally really had the freak out, like when I was finishing my IRB study, I was looking at like I have to write this dissertation, and the the requirements for writing the dissertation were like. I had to write all about dynamic difficulty adjustments. So I had to write all about like microeconomics and inventory math. So Will gave me a couple of great books and I was like working on the math stuff. And like, you know, you're entering your dissertation in law tech and you're like formatting all these equations. And like, I'm looking at it. I'm just like, I fucking hate this. Like I hate it. Yeah. I don't want anyone to read it. It's not even good. Like the, the revelations of my dissertation seem so basic to me that they're almost embarrassing. And Ian kept saying to me, you have to keep it simple. You have to keep it scope. You need to graduate and then you can do whatever you want. And I was like, but what I'm writing about is so passe already to me. I've already known it for a year and a half. No one cares. Like I could go work at Valve. Like, why don't I just go work at Valve? You know, like what? And so I started to kind of ask people, like if I didn't go into computer science and I wanted to be a game developer, like 
what kind of job could I have? And somebody was like, you could probably be a designer. So I interviewed, on, I, got, I got an interview on Medal of Honor. Okay, all right. Interesting. It was not a good interview. Was that, where was that? Was that it was at EALA. Yeah. Alan hooked up for me, Alan and Neil Young. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, I was such a disappointment. But I, uh, Alan was like, you should interview with a few people. And he was like, why don't you interview with Patrick and see if you'd be a fit for Mel Alon or something. <laughs> I went into the interview. And he was like talking to me about stuff and asking me what I was interested in. And <laughs> I pitched him a game <laughs> for a franchise, uh, a comic book called Street Angel, which I loved, which was about a ninja skate girl that lived homeless and fought monsters in alternative universes, but it was also homeless and had no one. And I loved it. <laughs> And it's like the cardinal sin of pitching a game. Like, I didn't own the franchise. I didn't know the guy. And, like, literally no way in the world was he going to make it. And I was like, if you hire me, I can make a Street Angel game for you. <laughs> and he was like, thank you for your time. Yeah. Um, but then I did interview with the Spore team. Okay. I went up and met uh, Lucy and the team there. And that was when they were, like, about 15 people. They could still fit around a table. What year would this be? Oh, man. It was 2004 or five. probably. So this was before the GGC demo? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, it was, yeah. Yeah, because, yeah, I left. It would have been, like, 2004. So they had just started in Emeryville. Okay. And no one knew what it was. And I was like, this is going to be cool. And then I just thought about it. And I was like, these people are all top of class. Like, I'm not a good enough programmer to be on this team. And they were like, yeah, we'll call you. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. And I also didn't understand the game design, to be totally fair. Like, it seemed really big, and I didn't understand what they were doing. Like, <laughs> well, and I was like, well, I'm... Maybe you did understand I'm, the I'm clearly not a good enough game designer to work on this team. Yeah. So, and like, I loved Haim and Chris. I thought they were so cool, and I loved the creature creator idea. I, I was, like, really into it. But then yeah. I was like, well, what if I just, like, interview with The Sims? And so I interviewed on The Sims expansion pack team, and I got that job. And I went, I went in to EA being like, I'm going to be a programmer designer. And they were like, no, 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 no. Just like read these fames and like design stuff and like read make these what? fames, which is the, it was the way that we spec'd out uh, new ads to the system. Okay. I don't even remember. Is this, so is this Walnut out. Creek or is this uh, it Redwood? Was EA Redwood Shores. Okay. It was right after they took the Walnut Creek team down there. Okay. So I joined that team and I worked on the expansion packs and everybody in my community was like, why are you working at Electronic Arts on a franchise expansion team. And I was like, because that's the job I can get. Yeah. And I was one of the two knowing, women there. Knowing the now, I mean, now you kind of know what was available at that time. Mm -hmm. Do you think there was a, like, a, you know, you had a, you had a, that's where you asked ask this. Knowing what you know now. Yeah. Would you would you have aimed for something different? Is that possible, or do you think there were barriers? I do not that? think that I had the mental capacity. I mean, to be totally honest with you, like my first couple of weeks at EA were just really intense. Like okay. you have to imagine, like a person with my non neurotypical and like queer <laughs> sort of experience, like being in grad school for eight years, right? Yeah. Like like literally, my life was. All day, every day, I read books and I look at my computer and I hang out with four people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, like literally there's four people that I see on a regular basis. And the rest of the time I'm either like doing Kung Fu or rock climbing or like going to see experimental jazz, drinking weird beers at the Hop Leaf. Like 
going to watch the Decalogue with my best friend who dropped out of grad school shortly after I met him. Like just like living on 1200 bucks a month, learning to cook so that I could yeah. like, feed myself vegetarian food, riding my bike everywhere. I didn't have a car, I recycled all my clothes. Like everything I wore was thrifted or I made myself. Yeah. Like I had such a small life. Yeah. It's too bad that it, you weren't able to start at Walnut Creek because I, yeah, I, I'm I've sure done, that would have been amazing. I've done some time at Roman Shores. Like I worked on like knockout games there. And yeah. It's a big corporate, you know, it's, it's a game studio. So it's still, when you walked in the okay, lobby, it was like a big giant corporate, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a big corporate structure. Right. And, um, you know, there's a lot of people there, a lot of like people who really know what they're doing. And like, now I was like obsessed with and, collecting Chris Ware comics and like Mobius and like, I was such a nerd. And then like, when I went to work there, I remember like the first couple of days I would get home and I was living at the time, Doug and I were living down in Palo Alto because he was working at Crystal Dynamics on the new Tomb Raider. And I would go into the bedroom and I would lay on the bed and I would just like stare up at the ceiling for like an hour because like I had had to be in meetings where there were like 25 people in right. the meeting. And then like people would come to my desk randomly and ask me questions and I was just like not mentally equipped to be like doing anything of that scale with people. Like right. so they I had never given a conference talk. I like I knew no one, you yeah. know, like the most intense thing I'd ever done was a game jam. Yeah. You know, like the very first game jam on planet Earth was the most intense thing I had ever done. Which looking back, for most people would have been totally overwhelming. But for me, it was like in a room with a bunch of other people going, yeah. eh, you know, you know we it's kinda, fine. We kind of jumped over that because that'd be kind of fun to actually talk about sure. that, that game jam. Yeah. Like, well, um, I mean, yeah, because, I mean, it was so wild. They were so crazy. Yeah. Um, so what, yeah, talk about that. Like, how did that all come together? And it what was, happened? I mean, I think that like at the time, everybody, I had been to a couple of like conferences. I'd been to E3. I went, I went to Tokyo game show and like my favorite games at the time were weird Japanese games. Like I think like the bit generation games on GBA, stuff like this. Like I really, really, really loved weird experimental games like Mr. Mosquito, a dog's life, you know, yeah. like mad maestro, like, I'm picking on all the bad iOS ones, but iOS fresh games label. But I love to play cutout bin games and look at the mechanics in them and try to figure them out. And I had published the MDA paper, which was about how to like look at games as a mechanics, dynamics, aesthetics loop, and to understand that like if you could think about where the aesthetic outcomes came from in the dynamics, then you could reverse engineer mechanics. And if you practiced it enough, you could start to design from the aesthetics as opposed to the mechanics. Right. So you, I was already in that space, you know, like you were, you were one of the authors on that paper. Yeah, I was, yeah, I was the first author on that paper. And then I put I'm my, sorry. Sorry. I have to like, it's just so bizarre <laughs> that I don't know how to put this, but like, that's like a fundamental piece that was done in game development. Yes. And you were someone who didn't know, like, you are someone that there was no obvious way to actually get into game development. No, I did it. I, I wrote about it because I thought it was awesome. Yeah. And I wanted people to understand that we could make more independent weird games if we just stopped trying to perfect the shooting stuff. Right. But I did not expect anyone to pay attention to it. Yeah. No, I had absolutely no... I had no aspiration. I'm like, at the time that I was doing this, like Sid and Warren and like Will were it. Yeah. Like they were huge, like 
Sims Online was on the cover of Time magazine. Right. You know, like I was just some girl in Chicago, like nerding out with a bunch of guys that were a lot smarter than me and that were all engine level programmers. Like I was not an engine programmer. Right. And like I wasn't Will. Yeah. But I mean, what, what that paper kind of talked about was, you know, seeing through the all the other junk that went around game development of like, hey, what's actually inside? Like, what's going on in the game here? Yeah. Like, what are the what are the actual key components which you're going to change around for each game? But like, um, you know, these are your tools. These are the things you can change that are going to change the player's experience. Yeah. Right. Like, it was you know it was an important piece of work. Thank you. Right? It's my most cited paper, and I constantly get notifications from the academic thing that it's on that I'm on that tells me people are linking it and citing it. And people write me all the time and say, like, oh, I want to add something to the mechanics dynamics of framework. Do you think it's okay to mod it? I'm like, it's a framework. That's the <laughs> right. whole that's, fucking point. Like, point. you know what? Add as many things as you want. Add, add belly buttons. I don't care. You can put anything in there. Like, just... As long as you're trying to figure out how to make games better, that's all that matters. Like when I was like in grad school, when I was like 25, 26, like and playing these weird games and cutout games, I was obsessed with talking to people like about it. Like I started teaching in this workshop with Mark and, you know, to be totally honest, like I kind of had to beg to get in. Like I was like, hey, right. I will, I'll be the gopher for okay. the session. Put uh -huh. me on the session. And I will, I will get the equipment and I will help you set up the rooms and I will like manage the like sort of like the flow in and out for coffee and stuff like that. And they were like, okay. Right. And then like after the workshop was over, we had like a disaster in the workshop where we gave people these foam batons uh, for it to design a location-based experience called Foam Combat. And like people were hitting each other with them and getting really aggressive. And at the end of it, like it kind of blew up. And so at the end of the thing, I was like, I have a couple of suggestions about how I could modify the curriculum. And everybody was like, what's wrong with the curriculum? Well, I just think the intro slides are a little bit too fast here and a little too slow here. And I think we should do this and we should do this and we should do this. I remember Mark just being like, who the fuck do you think you are? Like, why are you telling me this? Like, shut up. And I just was really stubborn. I was like, well, I'm just saying, like, you know, I just think this and this and this. And then, like, by the time I'd been in it three or four years, I was teaching. Yeah. And then I was running it. Yeah. You know? And, like, I would run a whole room. And I, like, made major adjustments to slides. And over time, Mark became much more amenable to feedback. And, like, we all grew up and we all got less aspy. And, like, but at the time, I remember thinking, like, <laughs> I am lucky to be able to be in the room. Like sure. I ran a session with um, Scaff and um, the designer of Magic. Uh, Garfield. Garfield, yeah. yeah. And um, Richard and I went out for like coffee. Mm -hmm. And he had a game in his bag because he had a bag of games in it because he's asking. It's like easier to talk about stuff when you're like touching an object and like playing yeah. a game. And we were playing this game called Formel Fun at the Starbucks around the corner in San Jose. It was like 2000 maybe or 2001. And uh, we were just talking about game design. And at some point I just remember thinking like, I'm having a conversation about game design to prepare for this like metagaming betting session that we're going to totally illegally run at TDC. 
with Richard fucking Garfield. Yeah. <laughs> like, how did this fucking happen? Like, why am I talking to Richard Garfield? And he fed me so much coffee that I got super out of it. Like, I was wired as fuck. And then yeah. we were walking back to the session to teach, basically. And we ran into this guy, and he was like, hey, what's up? And I was like, oh, hey. They were talking, and I was just, like, being me, quietly watching. And he turned to me, and he was like, hi. And I was like, hi. I was like, I'm Robin, and I'm a grad student. What do you do? He's like, well, I work on this stuff and this stuff. I was like, oh, you know, he would really, you would really like to read. There's this researcher, Ken Perlin. And he was like, I am Ken Perlin. (laughs) 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 And I was like, ah, that's so dumb. Like, that's that's, awesome. I had no idea who he was. (laughs) And I name dropped him to him. Yeah. So oh, that's, he that's was fantastic. like, every time I saw him there after that for like sure. five years, he'd be like, hi, I'm Ken Perlin. And I'd be like, oh, I'm so bad. Oh, so I was so coked up on coffee. I didn't, yeah, I just, yeah. but it really, it was just that I, I knew no one. Yeah. Like everyone was a revelation to me and they were a mystery to me. And they were so, I'm like, I loved magic. I played the shit out of magic. I met my grad school boyfriend playing magic. Like I had a massive magic collection and it was just like, He'd just say stuff, and I'd be like, can I write that down right now? Like, it was impossible to describe how easy it was to walk around and just bump into someone like Ken Perlin or Richard Garfield. And then, like, in five years, it was impossible. Yeah. Yeah, you know? it was, a, like, a golden moment. I mean, like, you're... I would not be here if it weren't for the fact that I just happened to fall into it when I did. Yeah. I mean, the group of people that you Especially connected to... Especially not my body. Yeah. <laughs> no. Um... um but you were asking me about game jams. Oh so well, actually, that's well, how I met, actually, that's how I met all no, no, those no, no. people. No, no, no. We'll like uh, <laughs> we'll like Arabian Nights it back up I'm, here. Yeah, like, I'm, we, I'm so we actually bad. talked about MDA. Let's right. actually talk about MDA. When did you? So when did you write that exactly? So uh, I went to see Mark and D- Doug's talk at GDC in like 2000, I think, on formal abstract design tools. Or Doug wrote the article on formal abstract design tools in Game Developer, and I read it. Yeah. And then Mark gave his MDA talk at GDC, and I was like, and F F A D T F D FADT and MDA were kind of like the two things. Yeah. And I was like, of these two things, like I love formal abstract design tools and I love Doug, obviously I dated him for like 10 years. Like I really liked it, but like MDA, there was something about it that like, what I loved about it was that Mark had a slide that was like, this is a thermostat. The thermostat reads the temperature of the room and then it adjusts the temperature to get to a steady state. It's a feedback system. And like, if you break the sensor, then the feedback is broken. And if you break the, you know, if you break the, you know, the operant conditioner that like actually changes yep. the room, then it's also broken and you get into a race condition. But I was like, this makes sense to me. Like I can see the diagram, I can apply it. And then I went back home and I played a couple of games. Pro- I probably, I pl- probably played a couple of turn, turn-based strategy games that I was playing at the time. So maybe it was like, I, like, I don't know, like, uh, it might, it, it might, it might've been that I went back and looked at XCOM, yeah, but I was sure. like starting game. to think about like, okay, what are the systems in this game that I would change if I was going to mod it? And then like thinking about animal crossing or early animal crossing or, or like, or, like or early games like that, that I was being exposed to at that time. And I don't remember what they were, but I remember thinking like, this is something that I can use in my dissertation. And then I was like, I went to Ian and I was like, I want to write a paper about this concept that Mark introduced me to. And I want to apply it to a bunch of games so that all these AI people that are saying AI solves game sign problems will understand that actually in this context, the system, the feedback loop is the AI and it's part of the design. Yep. 
And like, I'm going to use Monopoly as an example. And like, I'm going to write it up. And he was like, sure. And then I was like, I'm actually going to organize a session for this AAAI on AI for games. And I'm going to submit the paper. Yeah. And so I submitted the paper and then I got the session and then I was able to invite a bunch of people. And that was where I met Will. Okay. So like, right. that was kind of what was happening. Okay, I was that's... Like working on the curriculum and then I wrote the paper and then I started organizing conferences. And then from that, I organized the education summit. And at the same time, we had been doing the jams. And then it was like, we should present the game jams at GDC. And John was like, we can do this. And so we did the experimental gameplay workshop for the first year. We showed our game jam games. And we had done maybe three jams at that time. And the next year, people did jams and submitted them to EGW. And it was like, oh, people, it's like a system. People can do these. Like, I mean, when we did it, it was like Intel gave us all the computers for it really yeah kim pallister shout out to kim pallister world's best dude um they gave us all the computers so i basically the boxes came to oakland i unloaded all the computers out of the big shipping crates yeah i tested all the software on them i put the physics engine on them that i written and then i ran them so you were i mean you organized the first jam Uh, well chris and john did but i was i was a gopher i was a helper you know maybe for the for the first or second i think it might have been the second one okay yeah okay all right, so you, you know, you were... I went to the first one, and then I think I helped with the second one. Okay, cool. And... It was like the gang mall, you know, <laughs> right. the sweater girl, okay. you know, like the nerd girl. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it was the only woman. Yeah, so I only kind of found out about the jams kind of like at GC where they talked about, hey, we do this thing here. And... IGJ zero, IGJ one. Right, and... Um... Numbered from zero, because that's what programmers do. Sure, yeah. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Such nerds. <laughs> Um, we were adorable though oh my god we were so cute yeah the the thing that jumped out there for for me and probably a lot of people i assume is just that you know there wasn't the the industry was narrowing right like the 80s was like all jams all the time it's just like they but yeah but they were like in companies yeah yeah and it was just like you know we don't well and we wanted and... to give games away for free online yeah so that was the thing that we did that was super weird it was like that we got together we hacked these games over a weekend and then we put them online for free yeah and intel paid for the website and you could download them yeah. and play them on a computer i mean eventually they all broke because all the lots were broken or whatever um and we did the one with all the doom with the doom wad where you were playing we made all these games with doom sprites it was so fun um, but we thought that it would be cool if instead of having to know a guy and know a guy and know a guy and get a game on a disc and then have it end up in a cut in, up in, you could just publish it to a weird website on the internet and other weird game designers could download it and play it. And no one had done that. Right. It was like demo scene. Chris was like, let's do it like the demo scene. Yeah. I remember yeah. people referencing that as yeah. like the right, like inspiration. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, I mean, it was, yeah, like there was there was a narrowing of the industry. It felt like there were less and less things were becoming possible because everything had to fit this very narrow box. Yeah, car like, guy, sports guy. I mean, you know, like, shooter guy. Yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> you know, or thing, shooter lady with huge boobs. Right. Yeah. Oh, there can only be one. <laughs> I mean, echoing back to like what you said of like you know, I, you know, I don't want to be just this or this or this mm-hmm. or this. That's mm-hmm. exactly what was going on in the industry at the time. Except like, in Japan, which was so fucking cool. Yeah. Well, you know, and I I remember <laughs> just being like, wow, yeah. like. When Kata came to EGW and showed Katamari, that was like the biggest triumph yeah. of my fucking life. Yeah. I was just like, this game is rad. No one else would build it and it would never get built here. And then they shipped it in the US and they translated it. Yeah. Yeah, it was like, great. Fuck yeah. yes. You know? So that was my I was like, I thought I thought I guess I thought of myself as kind of like a cool hunter in games. Mm-hmm. Not as an innovator or like I, you know, or like a developer. 
right for a very long time yeah all right well let's get to the let's get to the life as a developer (laughs) so and you you were hired as a game designer yeah for the sims yeah for sims 2 sims 2 which at that point was expansion pack expansion pack team yeah the sims 3 team was 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 working on the new engine and we were we were doing the old stuff it wouldn't it have been a simpler path for you to start as like an ai programmer uh at the time i did not have the confidence to set myself up as a programmer and also because of my therapy and learning that I have a different kind of way of being, I wanted to do a job that I could excel at without overcommitting. Right. And so I went there thinking I'd be a programmer designer, not an AI programmer. Yes. And there were a lot of really good people there in the programming team and they were well established and it was easier for me to break in through design. So that was what I did. And yeah. then when I got there, I started interacting with the teams and everybody was really miserable about having been moved to rubber chores. Yeah. And they asked, did anybody want to do some work on this thing called the People Core, which was going to be like a group of people that volunteered to kind of figure out like how to improve morale on Sims 2. Okay. And I right. volunteered. I was uh-huh. like, I, I I care about that. Like, yeah. I think part of my like, you know, restorative justice or like, you know, anti-racism kind of the stuff that I was doing in college it it kind of snuck in there and I was like I bet people are upset because they feel oppressed in some way and like I'm a good person to advocate for people that don't feel good about what they're doing so I'll just do that and so they were like we had a meeting and they were this is like in my first six months and they were like what how can we get people to tell us what they think and I was like let's make an anonymous feedback box and we'll host a -a complain-a-thon uh, and so I made this box and then I covered, it was like a big box with a slot on top. I covered it with fuzzy material. And then I put out those like stickers. It was like a smiley face, but I put the little red dot on it, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like who watches the watchman. And it was like, if you complained, you got to take a sticker and put it on. And oh, like, I complained That's cool. and everybody complained and they stuffed the boxes full of complaints. <laughs> okay. Not 90% of them were about how filthy the men's bathroom was because it was being overused and undercleaned. Yeah, sure. So we fixed that one. And then the, a lot of them were about free food. And then there was a whole set of them that were about like, why is the expansion pack team being asked to do more for less? And why aren't we giving our players more value? And like really intense questions that were being asked of the upper division of management. And it was a super education for me. Right. And I started really getting interested in like, okay, what's happening at EA? Like I went from being like a designer on this team to being like, what is this place? And like, how do all these people work? And I started to see it as a system. Mm -hmm. And then I started like meet with like Gabby and HR, my friend, like who was like working, Colleen is working in HR and being like, is there a women's group here? Like, I don't see a lot of women, but I would like to meet women on other teams. Yeah. Like, how do I do that? And they were like, you should just start a lunch. Mm-hmm. So I like reserved the cool guy conference room at the back of the EA Redwood Shores lunch area. And then like, I just told a couple of girls that were in the animation team, like having lunch for women. Like if you know other girls or female identified employees that want to come and have lunch with us, let's just do it. And then like within two months, it was like, well, why am I not invited to the woman's lunch? And I was like, oh no, intersectionality is hard. This is a really difficult project. Um, and so for the first, the first, the first year that I was there, like I, I really saw it almost like a research project. Like okay. how does a company this big work? How does the Sims work? Why are people so unhappy? Like, 
And I knew people like I, I knew Rod Humble was running the division. So yeah. like I knew people that were responsible for the PL. And like I'd say to him, like, how does this how do you make these decisions? Like, what's the metric? Yeah. You know, and he'd be like, It's really hard, you know, like every game goes to the marketing team and they do a forecast. If the forecast gets it's not bananas, then we don't do it. Yeah. And I'd see great game designs, like my friend John Paul did like an amazing game design for a fishing game for yeah. For GBA, and, you know, just get killed, you yeah, know, and you'd be I like, mean, wow. As if the marketing department is some magical, you know, uh, uh, medium, you know. Well, <laughs> and, yeah, I would talk to Rich Hillman and like, you know, Michael John and all the people that were on the creative side and be like, how does this work? And, you know, Neil gave a great talk about just the ROI on money spent on small titles versus big titles at EA. It was amazing, you yeah. know. So, yeah, I learned, I learned hell of a lot of working there like it was like an entire education in, in making games like i had no idea how it worked right and i'm so grateful for it like i would not be the person that i am today if i hadn't actually existed inside of a corporation that was making these huge games with all the money and like access and like why they you, sent me around the world you know yeah why did you become so curious about the the process as opposed like you think it would have been different if you'd been working on a game that maybe you like really wanted to get more in the design side totally like if i had gone to work at valve or i mean who knows though if i'd gone to valve i probably would have been the only woman there too so you know i mean it's like hard to say but i i didn't have the opportunity to go work at an indie because they didn't really exist back then sure and it was like you break in in a game company. Like I could have gone to Blizzard, but we all know how that turned out. Um, so I'm I'm grateful because like I was part of this weird recruitment year in EA, like 2006. It was like 2005 or 2006. That was like, and by the way, I was 32 by this time. Right. So like I was 32 years old when I left grad school and started working. Yeah. So a lot of people are like, you must have known what you were doing or how do I break into the games industry? Like a lot of my students and I'm like, don't ask me. <laughs> Go to I grad was, school for eight years. I was literally <laughs> like, my dad was like, you're doing what? Yeah. You're what? You're not finishing your PhD and you're going to go work on a video game? Like, I don't even understand what that means. Like, and you're not married yet? Like, what's <laughs> no, wrong with no. you? You know, like, oh, to no. be totally fair, my, my dad never pressured me to get married. But, but like, it was definitely, like, I was so bizarre, like, compared to most people in gaming, even by them. Like, I was not a – I wasn't like Zach or these people that, like, learned to program and were on Ultima when they were 16. You know, like, it right. was – I was the exact fucking opposite. So, like – Everyone that I met at Maxis that had been at Maxis had been there since they were like in their early 20s. So Maxis was an indie and they immediately got acquired, right? There was no such thing as like indie developers. So I can't say what it would have been like to go work on an indie team at that time. The reason I got obsessed with how EA worked was because that was the problem that I could see. where you were, yeah. Yeah, it was where I was. Yeah. Yeah. And like, (laughs) you know, like Ben Gordon walked me to my desk on my first day and then like stood up behind me and was like, hey, everybody, you should meet Robin. One day she's going to be all your boss. Wow. Yeah, it was great. That's, uh, that's, that's a great start. <laughs> I won the Fast Tracker Award in 2006 at EA, which is like a little guy running in place. Yeah. And I was like, I got a notification from one of the HR people like, Robin, you got to go to the all hands in the basketball court stadium thing. Yeah. Because you got to be there. And I was like, I don't usually get one of those things. They're like, you got to go. So I went. And they were like, and the Fast Tracker Award goes to Robin Anaki. And I'm like... 
you know, like standing up and like walking up and getting it. I get back to my desk and I put it on my desk and one of my colleagues is like, ah, oh, the butt liquor. <laughs> and he got it because, you know, senior people. Like, it was all those lunches with Gabby. And I was like, fuck you. It's my first trophy. It is a dude. But, you know, <laughs> I still have it. Yeah, yeah, It's yeah. next to my desk at home. All right. So, we're 2006, 2007. Yeah. And so, you know, you worked in The Sims for a while. What what came after that? I mean, you're kind of, <laughs> you're kind of like... You have a wider view of EA, so... Yeah, I've been there for six months, and then Rod, at the internal Sims All Hands, was like, we're going to make a game for the Nintendo Revolution. Yep. And I was like, you mean the Dolphin? (laughs) (laughs) Which is what it was called when I started it. And he's like, and we want everyone at the studio to submit game designs. It's going to have this unique controller. Yep. And I submitted a game design for a Sims Wild West title where you would essentially, it was a mule, but set in the Wild West. Okay. And you would lasso horses and you would ride horses and you would be able to farm with it. And like, it was essentially like Animal Crossing meets uh, Harvest Moon meets Mule. Okay. And I was like, this is the best game design I ever made. And I won the contest. All right. He gave me me a book by Kierkegaard (laughs) as an award. (laughs) That was what I won, signed. Congratulations, you won the design challenge. And then they came to me and were like, would you like to be the lead designer on the Wii title? And uh-huh. I was like, am I going to get to build the Wild West <laughs> Sims game? And they were like, well, marketing's have reviewed the concept. <laughs> Wild West games don't sell. Yeah. Which, I mean, let's just all take a moment to like RIP that concept because like Red Dead came out five years later and did amazing. But yeah. uh, they were like, but we do really like the Animal Crossing concept. So why don't we do like a little Sims... Animal Crossing, come up with an idea for that that uses the controller. So I went back to the drawing board and I came up with an idea for a Sims title that was chibi. Uh, They really wanted the title to appeal in Japan and Asia and more generally. Chibi, actually. Chibi, like cute, like chibi, like like cute style. And I remembered that Kata's characters in Katamari were these like little square people. And I was like, I want to build little Lego people. I'm going to make a game with like simulated Lego bricks and you'll use the controller to like paint them and then put them together. Like that was the idea. And then I, I had a friend Joe there who was a super designer and he was like, he had done a presentation about the core loop of the Sims, which is essentially, uh, earn money at your job, spend the money on stuff, upgrade your ability, get a better job, earn more money. So and like, it's just like a positive feedback loop until the stuff you have is so fancy that it breaks all the time. And then you're having to manage all your broken shit while you're also spending money on new stuff. It's like the classic critique of capitalism. Right. And he was like, you know, in my game, we're going to change this and this. He made a really awesome mod for The Sims where you were on a strand on a desert island and he built a crafting system in it for like building clothes out of raw materials. Still my favorite. Sims Castaway. Best game of all time in the Sims <laughs> franchise, in my opinion. I loved it. And um, he gave a, a presentation to the designers about how he had modded the loop. And so I started thinking like, well, what if I made a game that mods the loop, but it's a virtuous cycle? Because by then I was meditating on a regular basis in order to deal with my brain. And uh, and I was like really into Buddhism. And I was like, what if I built a game where it was a virtuous cycle where you gave away everything? And so okay. the idea was that you you go to this town and unlike Animal Crossing where you get in debt, 
<laughs> and immediately have to like like do all this labor and oh, horrid shit. There is a lot to t- talk about there. But yeah, 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 go yeah. Ahead. What if what if it's the opposite where you show up and then you find stuff and you build locations that attract new people? Yep. So you're restoring the town by like using the natural resources of the town to make people feel welcome. And that was the game design. So we worked on that for a while. This, mind you, I'm 32 years old now, probably pushing 33, ripe old age of 33. I've been on a game design team for six months right? where I'm doing expansion pack designs in a highly regimented system. And then I get this awesome team of new grads and researchers to work on an experimental game design for the Nintendo Revolution for six months. And then that's pretty fast and not they, a lot of time. They roll on 70 people from their PC games team. Yeah. In one day. Wow. Wow. And then I'm managing a $70 million project as a lead designer with no experience. A in $70 million dollar project? 70 million bucks. I didn't even know they went that high for these type of projects back then. It was like a million dollars ahead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, the overhead was expensive and it yeah. was like it took a year and a half. So, yep. You know, it was a lot. Even if it was $35 million, it would have been too much. It was such a huge budget. It was yeah. a huge team. And they'd never worked on the Nintendos, so they didn't know the console. And it was a new console. It had very specific kinds of limitations. It was really a hard project. Like, it was such a hard... I have, like, Brent Iverson, oh my God, thank you. You're a genius. Sorry. Like, I was not able to do the job. I didn't have any scaffolding. I had no mentorship. Had several people that were very difficult to work with. My gender was a real issue. I was the right. only woman in leadership. Yeah, it was just. Really I mean, tough. that's with the exception of Mary Beth Haggerty, who was amazing and a real, really true resource for me. Yeah, um, because she was on the expansion pack team at some point during that project. But I mean, like, that's I really, really fast. Had, like, even, I had even no outs- support, even outside of gender. I think that would no, be I, it was a bad idea. I should not have said that yes. Fast. Yeah, I should not have said yes. But I really wanted a game on the shelf that was sure. mine. Yeah, you know? of course. I well, that's, I mean, that's, you know, that's why you do it. You know, if someone gives you that, yeah. I, you know, we all would do the same thing. We'd yeah. be like, yeah, let me, let me do it. Sure. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, it was really probably the worst two years of my, my life, yeah. you know, up until that point. Like I was constantly suffering imposter syndrome, managing all these senior people that had a lot of ideas about what should be done. They put an art director in over my art director, yeah. and she so was which, really great. And it was just there was so much drama. I'm sure I remember the name, but which which game was this? My Sims. My Sims. That's right. That's right. My Sims. Yep. And it, it ended up actually coming out okay. Uh huh. But it had a key feature, which was that I wanted you to be able to attract Sims to your town, even if you didn't have the resources for them. So there were like five kinds of Sims, like a sporty Sim and a goth Sim and a nerd Sim and socials and um. I wanted you to be able to send them to the travel agency and they could go to your friend's town yeah. and you would have a friend network. You could send yeah. your Sims to get charged up and they'd come back with goodies. Uh, and I pitched that and Nintendo came back and was like, we're going to hold the online feature until Animal Crossing releases. So, <laughs> oops. You're playing in their yard. Whoops. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was just like, why would they do that? And now I'm like, dude, yeah, no like, why did I build an online yeah. Animal Crossing game? I'm sorry, game? but we like your idea. <laughs> yeah. The same, well, I mean, they probably had already thought of it. Like, yeah. I mean, to be totally honest, it's not sure. like they ripped me off. It's just like I was trying to be in their sandbox. And like, I don't know why no one senior to me didn't see this coming and let us design a game for almost a year with this like core loop that focused on social. Wow. And inter- interconnectivity. So it ended up being actually that we 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 doubled down on grind. 
And it was game aimed at kids. The DS version did amazing. At EA, there are these like there were at the time these like long banners when you walked in that yep. were the five top selling franchises, and My Sims is one of those. All right. And I was like, well, that sucked, but we did it. You know. Did you feel like you got what across what you wanted to in the project? I think that the values of My Sims were yeah that like you need to give back mm-hmm. and you need to appreciate. The grinding was really rough. It was, yeah. the, the game came in super hot. It was very untuned. And like, yeah. if we had another 20 million bucks, you know, I mean, when you think about it now, you're just like, wow, like what a ridiculous thing. Like, yeah. you know, like. It's too bad because like, like the grind, crazy. the grind makes the game about something different potentially, mm-hmm. right? Like if you got too much of that. Now. You got to get the metal detector to find the things and then you got to yeah. compress all those things down. But the Lego part of it, like. The the best part of that process was when there were just the 20 of us working on the experimental builder. And when I saw Minecraft, like, four or five years later, I was like, this yeah. is what I yeah. wanted to build. Yeah. Like, if I could have had free range, I just would have built a digital Lego world where the Sims ran around inside of it. Right. And I tried really hard to pitch that kind of a concept, but it just nobody had the capacity there to do it. And now I realize, like, yeah, if I had left at that time... Maybe I would be Notch. I mean, well, I don't know if that's a good outcome, but like, you know, like I could have built that system, but I also like, I don't know, like I, it learned so much by being so bad at leadership and so confused and just spun around. Like some days I would go to work and I would feel like someone had put a blindfold on yeah. me and okay, spun what, me around uh, six what did times. You learn, what did you learn about leadership? I learned that having a plan is not the same thing as having people on board. Mm-hmm. You can write all the design docs you want. If people don't want to do it, they won't right. do it. <laughs> yeah. Like a large, a 70 person team with like 15 programmers and like 15 animators and like a bunch of artists and four designers and yeah. then a writer and the sound team. And So is there a good answer to getting people to want to do that or is it just hard work? I think the answer is, is that you need to really understand your people and the smaller my teams became and the closer I got to being able to have a conversation with everyone responsible for a single system in one meeting without there being more than five people in it, the better off I, be, I yeah. was. You know, yeah. By the time I got to Journey, it was like, okay, I can manage this. Yeah. 15 people, I can manage this. Yes, absolutely. So I think if I hadn't failed so hard... On my sins, um, it wasn't. I mean, it wasn't a failure, but for me, it felt like a failure. I'm always really hard on myself. Um, if I hadn't learned the lessons I learned there, I would have been. I wouldn't have been able to ship journey. So, like, I'm really glad about it. Yeah. But at the time, it sucked. Like, I definitely had days where I was driving home crying the whole way home. Yeah. Yeah. I get up in the morning six hours later, drive down to Kenyatta Road, get on my bike, ride my bike for two hours, drive to work, shower. And then just do the whole thing all over again. And yeah. then get my car and cry and go home and sleep for six hours and go back. Like yeah. I crunched insanely yeah. on it. Yeah, I just had I just had this massive anxiety about not doing it right. Yeah. And no really no no internal champions. No no, no scaffolding. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I feel for her. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. What what so what happened? What came next after that? <laughs> Uh, publicly disclosable information I switched to a team at ELA Um, I had an opportunity to work on a new game and I sort of made it clear that like 
I would need a lot more support and a lot more authority right. in order to feel comfortable leading again. And yeah. they're like, well, don't let the door hit you on the way out. Yeah. You have two weeks to find a new team. Wow, really? Okay. Yes. And so did you know, did you know, did you have like someone you wanted to work with at that point or did you have to start like, okay, I'm going to start working with I had head. kind of no idea. So I, I went to Alan and Neil and mm-hmm. was like, what should I do? And they were like, you should talk to Lou, who's running the teams. Yep. Lou Castle is running these teams down in BALA. There's this little game that Spielberg wants to do. It just started, and Ottman is doing all the systems programming on it. I was like, oh, yeah. I remember Doug saying that. So, you know, Doug and I talked about it, and I ended up applying to to be a UX producer. <laughs> okay. Um, I don't know. They have, I didn't know they'd have the phrase for that back yeah, then. Yeah. So I, I, took a, I took a lateral move, and then I took a step down. Okay. Because... The feedback I was getting was that I would never make it in EA unless I understood production. And sure. that my failure was that I was smart, but that I was not out for the team. I was out for myself. And you know, it wasn't untrue. Right. I was a computer science grad student. I'm really on the spectrum. I'm a programmer by training and an artist by nature. And I have ideas about right. how things should work. And I was not a collaborative leader. In another age, you know, a decade later, you were the, if you were the same age, you'd be probably just making your own games mm-hmm. in the indie world, mm-hmm. and like you wouldn't be dealing with this whole corporate corporate issue that nope. was probably not the right place for you. Nope. But I, I took it to heart. I was like, all right, I definitely want to keep working in video games. I'll yeah. go down there. I did interview a couple places, like I interviewed at Imagineering, but... To be honest, like the thought of working on something for three years or four years and then having it end up in a closet somewhere in the basement of oh, Disney yeah. and never getting seen, I just couldn't do it. Yeah. I wanted to ship games. Yeah. So I became a UX producer on Boomblocks, and then I became the lead producer working under Amir Rahimi. And Lou was super, super, super supportive of me. And that was when I actually went back to teaching. So Lou and I taught a class together at USC right. on game design while oh, I was working cool. on that. Yeah, that yeah, it was great. Louis and great. then, yeah, Lou was great. He was he was super supportive of me. Super super great guy. Like, he really helped me. And then at some point, the GSC happened, and then there was like GM after GM, and then yeah. eventually he was a GM, and there were these huge layoffs. And at some point, I was like, I got to get out of here. Like, this place is just. I'd been at EA for four and a half years. Yeah. I shipped three games. You're not gonna skip over Boomblock. Yeah. Okay. Fine. I yeah. love Boomblock. Okay, that's fine. It's yeah. a great game. <laughs> Please tell me about Back to winning Boomblocks. Oh. Well, I mean, you know, the the story about Boomblocks was that Spielberg had always wanted to build a game where you knock boxes over and that Trespasser had inadvertently become that game. (laughs) (laughs) So it really was like his concept. He he really, really wanted to build a game where you could knock blocks over and not have to clean them up. He loved the joy of knocking stuff down. That's such a simple concept. It's as if he comes up with good ideas because he's a really smart creative. Yeah, yeah. Um, And so the the rumor was he was working on this game. He was working on the big game with Doug and their team, LMNO. And then there was this tiny game, PQRS, that Doug had arranged to sort of have a little experimental group on. And so I went down there, interviewed for this small role in it, and got it. And Ottman had written this extra controller code that allowed us to track the wand when it was off screen. And it was a really awesome innovation. I ended up getting it implemented in all the EA games from that time. It was so cool. And like the idea was that you would point and then you would wind up and throw and the ball would go where the cursor was. And uh, when I got there, they had like three or four art looks 
And the one that we ended up picking was not my favorite, but it was the one that we picked. And it was kind of like going for the kind of like Chuck Jones animated like comic look because Spielberg had a lot of nostalgia for that. And um, all the characters in it were based on characters his dad made up when he was telling him stories at night. Really? Yeah. That's very sweet. Yeah. So like his dad used to tell him like cowboys and Indians stories, which now obviously terribly problematic, <laughs> um, like totally racist, but, um, you know, it sure. was, it was a different time as yep. they say. And so he wanted us to come up with all these little characters that were based on those stories. And like, you know, you know, I don't know, Dirk, Dark Haven, you know, these like weird yeah. names that his dad made up about these different cowboys and stuff in there, like, or cops and robbers, you know? And so we had all these like kind of tongue in cheek, like bandits and like, you know, guys with masks and striped outfits on with yeah. like, you know, a ball and chain on their ankle and stuff. And it was kind of supposed to be very slapstick, but the core gameplay was really cool. And when I got there, it had a text-based editor, if you can imagine, Okay. My friend Chris, who we called Vegan, um, had written them this 2D editor that you used just characters to set up the blocks. So you'd make H-H-H-H-H, and that was like one kind of block, and then B-B-B-B-B, and then you could separate them with spaces, and then it would render them in 3D. Literally okay. no idea why we did this. Wow. But when there I got there... cool 3D tool to... No. So <laughs> my job was to replace the vegan edit um, okay. with a 3D tool. Oh, and okay. I, I worked on that with Ben Smith, okay. who eventually became my husband. Okay. Um, and is no longer my husband. But um, a very great programmer. And so I worked on there. And that's also where I met Brad Foch, who's my sound designer at Phenomena. And we have been friends ever since. So it was like my first real connection with like a creative person that like I just like never wanted to not work with Brad. Yeah. He's amazing. And like, yeah, he did all the sound design for Boom Blocks and eventually he did all the sound design for Watam. He's just amazing. He's so good. Yeah. And so... So you um, built the, like you built, for example, you built the tool. We built the tool that the allowed levels. people to edit the, the levels. And then at some point I was like, hey, do you think we could ever ship this thing? Yeah. And they were like, yeah, I think so. So the game shipped with a little editor that you could make your own little puzzles in. Yep. And then in the in the sequel, Boom Blocks Barge Party, we uh, shipped a level server and you could submit yep. levels to it. And yep. so it was really fun. Yep. And again, a block builder. So it just had a natural connection for my for sense. Yeah, yeah. Like, actually, it was yeah, like, you know, it, it was there, experimental. Yeah. It, it was very simple. It had a much smaller budget. It was like a $36 million budget. Yeah. And the sequel had like a $6 million budget, you know? <laughs> so it was like, you know, what I ended up doing was like working on smaller and smaller teams with yeah. smaller and smaller budgets and more and more kind of like focus on creativity and yeah. expression. And so by the time that I got to my last game there, which was a creativity title that had like a $9 million budget, that was when the GFC was in full swing and they were going to be laying people off. Yeah. 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 And yeah. I was like, I got it. I got to jump yeah. ship. Thing I loved about Boomblocks is it's a testament. I mean, maybe this has all been proven out at this point, but at the time when it came out, which would have been two thousand nine, ten. Uh, no, 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 no. Earlier, um, it was earlier. Right? Maybe like two thousand eight. Yeah. Okay. Two thousand eight. So, so no, two thousand because I left in two thousand nine. So it shipped in two thousand seven, and then the next one shipped in two thousand eight. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So when it came out, you know, we were still in that narrowing of the industry. Yeah. Right. Like there wasn't a lot of stuff. Um, but it showed that just like, of course, this game will work. How could this game not work? 
right? It's you know, a game. The, the crazy thing is that he really wanted to do it on the iPhone. And like two years later, huh. Angry Birds came out. And I can't even imagine how angry Steven Spielberg was. <laughs> I just can't even imagine. We even tried to hire a team to make it on an iPhone. Huh. It just didn't get approved. I guess, yeah, I guess that's fine. Uh, to me, like, it's the multiplayer. Yeah, the multiplayer was so that's fun. Just, that's so, I, don't, I just, I, I, it's fine. I guess I assume it must have had a single player part to it. But all I think of is, is, is playing with other people. You know, right? it was funny because we were playing it all the time. So this is one of my biggest realizations on that project was we were playing it all the time in our cubicles, as in the, the programmers and designers were playing in their cubicles. And Steve, shout out Steve, you're so awesome, um, was like, was the like, the designer working on the concepts and they would write them up and begin on it. And then they boot them on the, the Wii and then um, play them and they play them in their cube and they would be sitting in their chair and like, you know, holding yep. the controller really close to the chest and then just whipping it yep. with the wrist. No physical engagement, just like sitting in the chicken playing it. Testing the levels. I'm like trying to figure out how can I reload this level, change a few blocks and make it even harder and like build a progression of puzzle into the game. And so that was what everyone on the team was doing. And my job was kind of go around and like prioritize tasks. I started a, a production process with stickies on a big board where I was like, hey, these are the levels that are good. These are the levels that are bad. Um, and as I was working through them, I started to get really nervous because I was seeing that like when I played it in the conference room with Spielberg, we were on the couch really far from the computer. Uh, we had like a simulated living room that we played in with him. It was really fancy. Yeah. And then everyone was playing it in like this within three feet of the screen. Yeah. And I, I started to get nervous about it. And so I went to Lou and Amir and was like, we need to test the UX in a, real in life a context where people are actually like yeah. playing it the way they'll play it in their living room. Yeah. And like, let's bring a bunch of people in. And I was like, I think we need to like, before we even do that, we need to like figure out if it's even like good. And at that time it was very sensitive and it was kind of like, yeah. you know, very nerdy and like picky. Like it was like a very precision. -y. So we, we had this guy, Bobby Moldovan on the team that was like so cool and um, he was like the Medal of Honor uh, admin guy. And he mm -hmm. was like just super nice, salty earth guy. His wife was the the principal of a school, an elementary school in L.A. And like a magnet school. And mm -hmm. they agreed to let us take boom blocks and put it up on the stage in their conference or their uh, assembly hall. Uh -huh. And then kids would come out yeah. of class and line up oh, and then boy. play it. <laughs> And they would They'll get you the there. real feedback. Yeah, they would sit feedback. there and they were small, right? Yeah. So they would they would immediately like hold the controller out at full length in their body yeah. and select uh, with the button, but their hand would move. And so they would yeah. select and then throw and the ball would be and like way. way not where they wanted. And then they'd be like, you know, trying, but they were standing at like living room distance from the computer, from the screen, from the CRTs. And it was awful. Like the, and I made the designers sit and watch like yep. for hours. Yep. And then we went back and I was like, we need to damp the controller. We need to make it easy to lock. And we really need to assume some kind of like slop on the turnaround on the windup. Yeah. And then we did in-house testing with families. And the second thing I learned was that you would give the controller to them and say, okay, it's mom and dad, two kids. Here's a game. Up to four of you can play. Have at it. And they get all the way through the UX, select in their colors, whatever. And then they go into the jewels level where they're like little soldiers marching around and all things are shiny and stuff. It was like supposed to be Camelot. And they'd start playing. The parents would be like, 
<laughs> like they, uh, these like sort of anemic throws, you know? Yeah. And the kids would just like haul ass and like nearly throw the controller at the computer. <laughs> they, like you really had to do the wristband thing with them. Yeah. And it was like, wow, adults suck. Yeah. Like they're so afraid to make mistakes that they won't even throw the damn ball. Like right. they won't even try. And so we had to write this really elaborate tutorial for adults huh. because they right. were afraid yep. to use their physical body to throw the ball. Right. And the kids would kick their ass, yep. you know, because they were, the, the adults were just so afraid. They yep. were so afraid of fucking up. And like those were like just too, like they're indelibly burnt into my brain. Like, yeah. You can't trust that adults will really experiment with anything. They have to handhold them. You need to give them so much time to feel safe. But kids will just like try anything. Yeah. You know? And it was like That's great you got the game out of the studio. I mean, I think that's like It was so awesome. Yeah. It was such a cool experience. And I lo- I mean, I loved working with him. He was yeah. great. Yeah. He was always kind. He never interrupted anyone. He Listen to all kinds of feedback. Yeah. yeah, and he only had a couple of crazy ideas. Everything else was good. <laughs> the underwater idea was a great idea. Yeah. Doing underwater at night with everything glowing, not possible without like a lot more practical lights on the, yeah. on the Wii. But we did a lot of cool shit on yeah. that game. Well, that's definitely a game where, to some extent, part of the game design writes itself and it just comes all down to whether you get the good feel yeah. off of it, right? Yeah. Because and, if, and, if you and don't, then you Oven's algorithm was perfect for the feel. It was so, so good. Yeah. 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 It's another great example about how. There's tons of games that have not been written and will never be written until someone gives puts the hardware together that make unlocks that game, right? I mean, it was just a game that was, a, was just such a perfect match to, you know, like when we had people over, I mean, obviously our kids loved it. Yeah. We loved playing it with them. But when you have people over, it's just one of those showcase games that you're like, okay, try Wii Sports and hey, try Boom Blocks. And like yeah. you get right, okay, I see exactly what, like, it's just built for this machine. You know, like, it made me so aware of my thirst to work on experimental platforms too. Like, mm-hmm. when the Wii, when the revolution became the Wii, I remember thinking, oh my God, <laughs> like, I'm going to make a game for the Nintendo Wii. Yeah. But it, it got wiped out the minute that I saw the Bison's box at a GameStop. I was like, yeah. Like that's my that's me. Like that character little pigtails in there with Ginny the Pirate. That's me. Like I made that character. She looks like me. Her backstory is me. Like this is awesome. And like Boom Blocks was the same way. It was like, yeah, it, you know, it didn't age well from the graphics perspective. Yeah, it had its issues, but it was such a fun game to play. And people like my students played it like yeah. i had kids come to me and say like i played my sims i played boom blocks when i was like, yeah. a very small child i'm really disappointed that somehow that didn't happen with the wii u because i actually think that like like we still play the wii u all the time for nintendo land yeah because it is this specific type of gameplay that exists nowhere else where you have a five-person game yeah that's deeply fundamentally asymmetrical yeah right you know the you know it's like the the Pac-Man, I mean the Mario, what's it called, Mario Chase, where yeah. one person is the Mario and everyone else is chasing the ground and like, you can't get to everyone else. And I was like, oh, this is great. I bet we're, there are going to be a lot of games that like mine this territory and it just doesn't happen. You, you know, know, I right? would never criticize Nintendo because I think Nintendo is the br- most brilliant in terms of organizational strength, thinking on a 500 sure. year timeline, sure. all the things that they do. So amazing. I think Treehouse is amazing. I think they're all really smart and obviously Miyamoto is amazing. Like, the one thing that was really sad for me was that I made three games on the Nintendo Wii and they like barely scratched the surface of what the market capacity was for them right. because they were not core Nintendo franchise games. Sure. If they oh, had yeah. been built with a license, yep. 
they would have done. Oh man, yeah. If, so if, if, if Boombox was, was a Mario game, Mario license, oh, it would have crushed. Yeah. And like they would have a, it would be still doing it today. You know, and you know, I, I I understand now that like the, the the resources, the capacity to build a game like that did not exist outside of it. No no indies were making Wii games at that time. Yeah. You needed to burn a disc every time you made a new build. Like yeah. I had to walk downstairs oh, yeah. to the disc burner guy. Yeah, a lot of the problems. Pick up my order. A know? lot of the problems were just structural. They the way the business it was just is, you know, it was the data format yeah. and yeah, yeah, yeah. and it was so hard but if we had had the strength of character to say to him this will do better if it has a mario franchise let it be a steven spielberg nintendo combo yeah you know i don't even know honestly from a business perspective i don't even know if that would have worked yeah. but like it was so fun and it was such a good mechanic and yeah. it didn't i mean the numbers were good you know yeah, like sure. To be totally honest, when I finished the second Boomblocks game and I started interviewing around, I had sort of three thoughts. And the first one was I had an interview again at Imagineering and Disney. Yeah. And then Chris Butcher at Bungie was like, you should come and be the, you'd be a designer on Destiny. And then Genova had come to me and said, you should be the lead designer of Journey. And I finally decided to go to Journey. And like the week before I left, like week before I gave notice, I think, um, Rich Hillman came to me and was like, we've been thinking about it. And like you and like a couple of these other designers, like Kyle and so-and-so were like, you've all made these really cool independent games inside of EA. Yeah. And they all, the ROI on them, like when you look at like how much money was spent on them versus how much money they made was really great. Yeah. So we want to have a little creative summit with you to talk about like, what can we do to like better support that kind of development. <laughs> I was like, like, oh well, dear. Kyle just quit and yeah. uh and uh the other dude quit and uh, I'm leaving like next week. <laughs> I'm like, sorry, but yeah. we gave you five years of our best life and like now we're all gonna go do I mean and like Carl will cry wanna make world of goo. Like yep. Yep. not like not a bad idea. Yeah. You know, and then like John shipped braid and then like we made journey and like I just think that like that was the moment when I realized like there are constraints inside of an organization that like, yeah. like Boomblocks is an amazing game idea. Spielberg was never heavy handed. He played every build. He loved the game. He wanted to play it with his kids all the time. We had to send a build to the Hampton so he could play it on their boat. You know, like, <laughs> I'm not even lying. He was so humble and so cool. And That's like, great. yeah. And like, it was such a good, yeah. it was such a good game design, but for like, if you've made Close Encounters of the Third Kind and then you have an idea to make this game on iPhone and then you see Angry Birds come out, you know, like, I mean, you know, it's like there's there's organizations and structures that will allow you to, like, make something that really reaches people and there are, then there are those that don't. And yeah. I think at that time, AAA game development yeah. could not make anything new, new yeah. that wasn't in... Yeah, it's tough. The, I, I, I mean, even to this day, really, if you think about it, like, who, who runs the charts, right? Yeah. And like, I mean, I was—they're all shooters, you know. Yeah, or, and I was at—I was at EA then, and I felt like there was actually there was actually a surprising amount of people who wanted to do things and do you know do things in a different way, like had the right intentions, but you know it's just all swimming upstream. Not not even necessarily against other people, just the way the way the business was, the way those the, that company that size is always going to work, you know. Yeah, it's, and it's, and it, it's it's it's, it's sad because they wanted to have innovative teams. They hired us, like. Yep. The other big, the other big publishers were not doing something like that. No, they yeah. fought. They fought to bring really creative people on. Yeah. It's just yep. that the organization couldn't 
couldn't bear it. You yeah. know, especially that whole thing where you send it up to a marketing for a forecast. <laughs> yeah, that just kills any, that kills yeah. anything. What I loved about Nintendo at that time and still love about it, like I remember going to E3 and playing this little shitty like camera-based dance game they had where you could take a photo of yourself on the DS and then it mapped your face onto a character and you did a dance off with other characters and they had like Miyamoto and Reggie in there or something. And I remember playing it and just being like, this is so fucking cool. Like they would release a game like Animal Crossing on a small platform and then see what it did and then they would give it more resources and more time. And they really, they made little innovations and they invested in them and they became franchises. Like when Animal Crossing came out this last, what, 2020, was like, this is the best game. It's what I wanted to build with my Sims. It's so good. Yeah. It's so fun. Yeah. yeah. It, and like, I can go visit my friend's island. Like, yes. Like, that's like a 20-year, you know, investment for them or a 15-year investment. You know, like, that kind of lead leadership takes a massive amount of work, yeah. you know. Yeah. Really, really does. Yeah. Yeah, and then I became Indy. Yep. <laughs> Thank you.